This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach. We're uh, we're giving you the tools you need, all the latest, greatest research and information to help you live healthier, happier lives. Also, some fun news, of course, the empty news, we call it, the Matt Townsend news. And, uh, of course, as well, just, just some good discussion with our own Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Hello. Jeffrey, you look a little tired today. Uh, I got about three and a half hours of sleep. Really? Just watching TV all night, huh? George is getting tired. <laughs> it's you know what? That's what happens. I had eight hours of sleep like on Monday or Tuesday, and then last night like five hours. It just keeps shrinking. You got three and a half. Yeah. Well, you're holding it together really well. Barely. Barely. We've got a lot to cover today. We're going to be talking about how your uh, your morals or your political polarization may impact your choices. For example. If you went to an ice cream store and your favorite ice cream, let's say, was caramel cashew. Hmm. Hmm. I'd try it. Let's say you love it. But then you found out that President Trump loves caramel cashew. Or Hillary Clinton loves caramel cashew. And if she was in the same room and ordered caramel cashew, would you then still order caramel cashew? Get real. So think this of the, is food. This is food. Of course, I of course would. I would. This is this. The researcher that's going to be joining us is going to talk about the fact that a, a lot of people, if somebody that they don't like or that they see as immoral does something, they will immediately do the opposite, even if they'd rather do the same thing. If I'd rather have caramel cashew, I would order another ice cream rather than have the ice cream that either Hillary or Donald Trump likes. If there is any food hypothetical and it involves a food that I enjoy, it doesn't matter. Your like, morals I might, go I might, out the window. I might have to do something illegal to get that food, and I might do it still. <laughs> it's so sad, but so true. And I think most people would say what Jeff is saying. But do what the research shows. Exactly. Whoa. See how that works? Well, Did you see what today is, too? Uh, Today is Take a Walk in the Park Day. Is this walking music? Don't you walk to this type of music? This is what's going through your head. No. Matt walks to the beat of a different drummer. Whoa, that's a great song. Sting. Stings the drummer. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was you and I travel to the beat of a different drum. You don't know that song? I I, I know a version of it. The, I don't recognize that one. I think, I think the reason I like this song is because this <laughs> it's the name of it's something you probably want to say to people that annoy you. What? Just go take a walk. Go take a walk. Go take a walk in the park. I love taking a walk. Well, then go take one. Well, I got a in show. The park. Do. We're doing it. I'm doing a show right now. When it warms up, Matt will take his job to I've campus. been doing it lately, but it's hard to get back in the habit. Why? Because sitting is oh so nice. Well, but I've had a lot of writing to do. Oh. So it's Thursday. And taxes. <laughs> a couple days before you're going to St. George, so maybe just don't get, get back into the habit at all. That's what I was thinking. Is okay. I, was, I was going to get in the habit during spring break. I was going to rehabitualize myself. Mm. 
Yeah. Force your children to walk. We always take hikes there. Yeah, I know. We call them death marches. Yeah. That's what it feels like, trying to get our kids to do that. It shouldn't be this hard. So we'll be talking, you know, how to motivate people. By the way, that is hour number three, how to do difficult things that are out of your comfort zone. I think it's hour three. Like this show? Reach. Yeah. Like keeping you awake. Got a studio sound, audience today. Sounds like the audience was waking up too. Yeah, they, they seem a little tired today. A little groggy. Um, we've got so much to cover, but let's get to the headlines. Terry's chomping at the bit. Uh, so many good things to talk about. Uh, Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Federal judge in Hawaii has extended his order blocking President Trump's controversial travel ban, refusing to request a request by the Trump administration to narrow his ruling. U.S. District Court, uh, Court uh, Justice uh, Derek Wilson ultimately sided with the Hawaiian Etur- Attorney General Douglas Chin, who described Trump's revised ban as a neon sign flashing Muslim ban, Muslim ban. Yeah. Yeah. We cannot fault the president for being politically incorrect, but we do fault him for being constitutionally incorrect, Chin said. The temporary order blocks Trump's travel ban in the state and thus has been extended until Hawaii's lawsuit over the matter has been resolved. The Senate Intelligence Committee has uh, devoted seven full-time staff members to the ongoing investigation of the Trump campaign ties to Russian interference in the presidential election. Committee Chairman Senator Richard Burr from North Carolina announced Wednesday. Burr noted the investigation is one of the biggest he's seen in his time on Capitol Hill, uh, saying the individuals have been looking at an unprecedented amount of intelligence documents. When asked if there was evidence of yet any direct links between Trump and Russia, Burr acknowledged the committee's challenge is to answer that question for the American people. Burr said the review should be completed within weeks. It begins today as they hold hearings. They made a special point of not talking about the House Intelligence Committee, which is a clown car of chaos. Yeah, those people are crazy. These two... Uh, the- there we go. The Democrat and Republican on the Senate committee are very united in their efforts. United in their efforts that they haven't started yet. <clears throat> and refused, well, to this morning. Yeah, yeah they're starting right now. But so yeah. they're, so far they're united. Right. Having not started yet. Well, this, the House hasn't started either. Remember, well, they yeah, cancel yeah. all their meetings. Well, but they, they haven't, they, they've already had hearings, haven't they? I think yeah. two. Yeah, so they've started. Just a few. But they're, they're not united and having started. Right. President Trump's approval rating hit a new low for uh, his and the Republican Party's failure to pass a bill repealing the replacement of the Affordable Care Act. According to Gallup's newest daily poll, the president now has a 35% job cool. approval rating. How low can you go? I don't know. It keeps dropping day by day. Trump's approval rating has been uniquely low throughout his tenure so far, peaking at 46 shortly after he was inaugurated. It makes you wonder if he if he cares. Like, I mean, you, well, you would think he cares, except it, he doesn't seem to like do anything dramatic that would make it change. Well, the 37% came out a couple weeks ago, and that weekend he announced the wiretap tweets about Obama. So maybe that was an attempt yeah. to get people back on his side. Well, a, a attempt apparently failed. A poll yesterday, 74% of Republicans believe that Trump Tower was wiretapped without any evidence to support that oh, belief, sure. but oh, they sure. believe it. And finally, on Wednesday, Samsung unveiled the Galaxy S8, its flagship smartphone. The first 
the first uh, the first major product from that company since it was forced to recall the Note 7 because, you know, it kept catching on fire. Yeah. The Galaxy 8 boasts a new Infinity display, which spans virtually the entire front of the device mm. and curves around the edges. It's like an infinity pool. Yeah, the new screen is possible in part because the physical home button has been eliminated from the front of the device. The phone can be unlocked via facial recognition oh, software. Boy. It's pretty fast, too. I was watching a video that you tip it up towards your face, it just unlocks. And it sees your face. Yeah. I'm not sure how secure it is, but... What if you have like a, a mask on or a, like or a... Or you have a photograph of someone who owns the phone. Uh, I'm not sure how that or works. Or you wake up in the morning and you're not looking your best. Right. Like you're kind of puffy sometimes, Matt. <clears throat> Pardon? Yeah. Um, Come again? So... Oh, come on! The finger, there's a finger scanner that has been moved to the back. It's right <laughs> next to the 12 megapixel camera on the back. They say it's kind of awkward because sometimes you'll put your finger over the lens of the camera so you get fingerprints on your camera. I saw a finger scanner being used while driving today. Okay. Well, I mean, I, somebody cut someone off. And yeah. They, there was hmm. a finger scan. Other new features include Bixby. It's their version of the uh, the assistant, so like Siri or Cortana. Like or, Bill Bixby. Well, they call it Bixby. The Hulk? Weird. Uh, the, Isn't that the Hulk? Uh, no. The option for turning the phone into a desktop computer with the purchase of a docking station. So you plug it in and you can see your phone on a computer and try to use it. as It's probably never going to work correctly. Uh, Bill Bixby yeah. was the Incredible Hulk. Wait Hello. a minute. That's his human name? Wilford Bailey Everett Bill Bixby. Was an American film and television actor, director, and frequent game show panelist. Oh, I thought you meant the the Hulk's name, no. and I said, "Are you wrong. kidding me?" See right there, I just pulled out of nowhere, nowhere. I just pulled out some trivia that involves you guys because all you talk about is are these crazy people. You ready to move on, Terry? And I I nail it, and you're like, no. And then, and now Terry's just trying to skip over this. And and further This is a huge moment. Not really. Before Samsung announced the Galaxy S8. Are we still on that story? Yes. They also announced that the Note 7, the one that caught on fire, is going to come back as a refurbished device. Well, sure. Yeah. As a cigarette lighter. So they're salvaging components such as the camera and semiconductors, extracting metal parts with Smart. the help of eco-friendly third-party companies. Smart. And they'll sell refurbished devices where applicable. So the fire starter could come out. You know, I mean, the, the company that made the batteries, their factory caught on fire about a month ago. Oh. <sighs> Was it because of the phone? Yeah. And then Samsung's also involved in the South Korean presidency impeachment. Oh, are they really? There's, there was like briberies and Here's the deal. all kinds of money oh, involved. So it makes Samsung's me mad because Samsung I really like as a company. And I like that Apple has to have a, have a serious competitor. And many are saying that this new phone is now the best phone out there. Oh, I believe it. It's an infinity phone. So yeah, it's like well, sitting by the pool, the infinity pool. You just set it on your... You know, you're, you just set it on the table and you feel like you're at the pool. Is it anything like an Infinity Stone? Ooh. Doubt it. Mm. I don't even know what that is. There's six of them. Actually, five. Oh, they guys. sit in a glove. You went so... And there's like a Time Stone. And What's that a... from, Matt? That, Speaking of obviously, trivia. Obviously, that's from uh, Hulkarama. <laughs> Wrong. Hulkarama. See, the real key is how did Thanos... Get the gauntlet. Well, he just gave you a, a major clue there. He Not get, really. The, he gets the infinity <laughs> gauntlet that the infinity stones fit into. That's the real key because that gauntlet, the last time we saw it, it was in Odin's trophy room. Do you guys read books? It's a trap. 
comic books sometimes, yeah. In yeah. fact, I read a Captain America book last night. He's working for Hydra now. You didn't know who Bill Bixby was. He's an actor from the 70s. Not an actor. Yeah. Well, the continuity on that show was weird because he'd change into the Hulk and his clothes are all torn. And then he'd change back into Bruce Banner and then he was, you know, clothes are fine. Well, he carries a a backup in his suitcase. (laughs) He's like this researcher guy on the run and somehow we always had a new wardrobe. Well, yeah. If you were the Hulk, you'd have a new wardrobe too? But how can he afford it? You didn't have a job. Let's say you had another problem. Let's say you had like a glandular problem and you you would sweat profusely. Okay. You'd bring two or three shirts to work. But you would have a job. Whereas this guy turns into a big green rage monster, which is really kind of hampers your employment opportunities. But how many times have you worked with a big green green rage monster? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very common thing. Is it? (laughs) Yeah. Minus the green. Minus the green. But there's always a rage monster in every. Who's the office. rage monster here? Well, I don't oh, wanna, this is safe. I don't want to. I don't want to name names. Just start naming names. But he's right there. Really, Jeff? Jeff's tired today. He's not. Like, he's got a little rage going on. Does he? All right. Wow, that went quite a while. Though. No, that's rage. That was the perfect amount of rage. <laughs> <laughs> I- Ivanka Trump, are you all right, bud? Yeah. yeah. Ivanka Trump apparently uh, just got a job. Yeah, she's on the, well. She's not on the payroll. Theoretically. Please tell me she's on HSN. She's an unpaid federal employee. <laughs> she comes on after. Which I didn't know you could be an unpaid federal employee. Yeah, but doing it so that she, she re- at least the, the press release or the statement that was made, that she recognized that if she wasn't on like an actual employee, then she wouldn't be under the same ethics rules. And that's what people were concerned about. Oh, so she, so yeah. not to be a distraction. Yeah. She's now a federal employee. She's under the ethics rules. Everyone else. Has oh, that's follow. that's good. Then then fine. Pay me a dollar and I'll be under your ethics rules. Yeah. Except she's not even getting a dollar, apparently. Hmm. That doesn't seem right. Like it seems like everyone that works for the government should be paid. But don't they have if their... we're going to make them follow all of the rules, right? Right. Well, I mean, could you look at a total compensation package, like security plus rides on Air Force or Marine One and Air Force One? And... No. No. Okay. Benefits. No. Health coverage. Office supplies. I mean, she'll have an office. Yeah, that's probably hey. it. Post-it notes. She'll take her pay and post it. You can't have enough pens. No, I never can't. have enough pens. I never even have one pen. Really? Not. I'm not saying I would do this job for one pen. How many pens would it take you to do this job? <sighs> can they write upside down? Yes. They have, space to, they have to be unique pens. You just can't have some like cheap. It's got to be like a choo-choo train that goes Ooh. when you tilt it. Oh. Right, yeah. That's all it's going to take? Mm. We may have just saved some money on the show. <laughs> How great is that? Hey, I uh, I was carried away yesterday watching an, a sad story of a python that ate a man. Oh, yeah. Did you see that in Indonesia? Yeah, we watched the video. Not yeah. the video. There's just photographs. But no, still there's disturbing. a video. Is there a video? There's a video. Well, I imagine there was. They cut the thing open. And the man, <laughs> apparently the snake came up and snuck up from behind on its little tippy tail. Yeah. I don't know how pythons get you but this guy was eaten whole yeah a, a average sized indonesian man mm. nice and the crazy thing is the entire like village gathered around while the python skinner yeah well came he op- opened it up and opened it up and the man was there <laughs> Did you see this dude just hanging out inside a snake it's crazy 
And again, so you think you've got it bad in your neighborhood. You think you've got <laughs> right. it bad at your job. Think about other places on this world, on this earth, where you can't even – I mean you could be eaten by a python. The story was normally pythons don't eat humans. Oh, really? Like, really? <laughs> I mean it was a human. Yeah. All intact. Yeah. You hadn't been in there that long. <sighs> it's crazy. Wow. Count your blessings, folks. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about how your morals might politically polarize just about everything. How you see the world, how you approach things in life may, you know, make it so you don't even like what you used to like anymore simply because your enemy likes it. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, recent research from Dr. Randy Stein, uh, who is an assistant professor of marketing at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, California, shows that people don't always make uh, decisions based on how they feel. For example, if you go to an ice cream shop and discover that other customers who support political candidates that you oppose ordered your favorite ice cream flavor, then you would actually be less likely to order that flavor. Even if you feel like it, even if you were craving it, you would probably be less likely to order the flavor. You may opt for a second choice simply because you don't want to agree with those that you perceive are on the other side. And so joining us today to talk about his research and explain how our morals uh, may be driving some of this political polarization out there, um, as well as our choice making and decision making is Dr. Randy Stein. Thank you, Randy, for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Matt. How are you doing this morning? Excellent. I love uh, this discussion and topic um, because it's almost it seems like our decision making. We always think it's kind of logical, and it and it just right. is, it is what we think. But what you're suggesting is there's 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 a there's kind of a hidden uh, dichotomy, a hidden issue going on, duality with us as humans. Yeah, I, I I don't know if it's if it's hidden per se, but uh, but maybe it, it's it sneaks up on us in ways in ways that we don't really want. Uh, the the idea here is if you're asked a, a pretty simple question like 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 you were saying, what what ice cream flavor do you want? That the way you answer that question isn't really just with your own desires, and in fact, if you know what other people how other people would respond to that same question, uh, that information nudges you one way or the other that you might not really want want to be nudged. That's interesting. So um, I, I guess this this your your research dives into this, but this is something that we would I guess assume is is the cause of a lot of the polarization then. And if I feel more polarized about the opposite party than anything they like, I don't like. The, yeah, that's that's right. Uh, so, so the the idea here is, uh, you know, the, these days we we hear a lot about social media being being echo chambers and, and things like that. But I think I think what's interesting and what argument arguments like that kind of miss is. Uh, if your if your Facebook feed is anything like mine, most 
most people on on it agree with you politically is always that one or two. Yeah. Kind of in spite of yourself, uh, devoting a disproportionate amount of time to to reading, and the uh, I think the the interesting twist there is like sure sure maybe we Facebook and social media is an echo chamber, but we actually have more access to what people on the other political side of the side of the political fence are thinking than ever before. Um, meaning that if if this is how how our minds work, we're in the way we perform preferences is not just but what we want, but we're kind of using our preferences to make sure that we are appropriately distanced from people who we morally oppose. Uh, then, yeah, uh, if we're seeing how we have access to what our opponents feel on just about everything, uh, just about everything can become a a political moral issue. Hmm. And it's really interesting. Does this lead to us? Because it seems like, for example, um, and this is a little extreme, but uh, you, you might be a Christian believer and, you know, yet in your Christian belief, you might come off as seeming less Christian in some of your political preferences. Is that just sure. us trying to distance ourselves from our opponent instead of living our own preference of Christianity? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, I I think... I think uh, if if what I'm saying is is literally literally true, then uh, then yes, that that's a that's a very distinct possibility uh, because the the idea here. Um, so this is this is a theory of, of morality from a guy named John Haidt, who's, who's at NYU, and uh, that was a big inspiration for my work. And that theory states that part of the function of uh, of morality is to hold group structures in place. And one of the ways that that's done is uh, by having an instinctual uh, blinding towards the other side's mm-hmm. point of view. Um, and what what that means is kind of like like you said, yeah. If, if uh, even if you're Christian and you hear something that if you hear about the views of of a political opponent, there should be that urge there to just have the opposite stance, even if it's it's a stance you wouldn't normally take. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the I think the the careful distinction to draw is just because that urge is there doesn't mean you're going to follow it. Yeah. Okay. But that urge that urge might be there even when you wouldn't want it to be. Right. But but I think it does open up a really interesting discussion. Um, just here locally in my own neighborhood, they they're thinking sure. about building a homeless shelter um, in my city or my town. And which seems like a really, you know, noble thing to do. They were actually moving a, a major right. prison away. So they would maybe just move the prison and eventually a, a, a smaller homeless shelter would be built near it or near that the land that the prison's coming from. 700 people, all, I mean, many, many Christian believers all showed up at a, par, at a meeting last night and just went off because and, and again it makes sense because you know land value and safety and all these other concerns but it seems so against the values of the community to fight so aggressively so but but i guess this it makes a really interesting point that you're that you're bringing up is um according to uh john height i guess is that this we use our morals in a way i guess to keep community or group structure we we like the rules right. of morality because it keeps us in our groups. Right, right, and and the the consequence of that, as 
to, to bring in your example, having a homeless shelter there would kind of upset that group balance. Uh, and again, to bring in this idea that the way we're making this decision, these decisions might feel logical, uh, and and I'm and I'm sure logic can and does play a role in in most people's decisions, uh, but they're not just logical; they're also social. Mm-hmm. And if having a certain preference would upset our social balance and cause us to identify with a group we don't morally like, uh, we're probably not all that likely to go to go with that decision. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Um, because then, boy, this adds a lot of understanding to why you can't compromise in certain legislation in Congress, why you yeah. can't make certain decisions. Yeah. So uh, a, a really strong version of uh, theory, which I don't know if, know if I necessarily agree with, but one that I think is worth thinking about is – um, I mean, and kind, and kind of the, the, the reason why I got interested in this question, I mean, if you imagine for a second on November 4th, 2016, if, uh, if a very staunch Hillary supporter was arguing with a very staunch Trump supporter about Hillary's emails and whether that means uh, she's unfit to serve as president, you know, if I told you that after the end of that conversation, that those two people shook hands and went for ice cream afterwards, you kind of know that's a joke, right? Mm-hmm. We all know that that, that, that doesn't happen. happen. Right. Um, but, but why shouldn't it? I mean, most, both, both people have the same set of, of facts. Why can't they just think about it, think it through, and come to a, to a consensus? Um, and I, I think part of that, and again, this is kind of an extreme version of, of, this, of this theory, but the, really the purpose of those two people discussing isn't to reach a consensus. The purpose is to be is to be right. Mm. Those people can't be right at the same time, so they wind up probably disliking each other more at the end than than, than they started. Uh, but that that is kind of the, the problem here. Is when two people on the on the on the opposite sides are conversing, it might feel like they're trying to convince each other, but maybe they're not. Uh, maybe what they're just trying to do is just prove themselves right again and again and again. Um, and obviously that, that is not good if you're, uh, if you're a person who values uh, political discourse, yeah. which is probably the most people. And solutions, right? It's, um, right, right. And so maybe too, Randy, this is about which group you're trying to appease. We, I heard this morning that you know, this, the Senate is now going to start investigating the Russian issues and um, they're going to do it with such more collegiality they're not going to be as partisan, but really, it's because they can be they can be bipartisan and united at whenever they're playing to the Senate as being yeah. collegial. But when they're playing to their base, their bases, they're going to fight. So I guess it depends yeah. on which group we're trying to uh, bring into the fold. Might depend on which morality we use. Yeah, I mean, and that and that's a I, that's a that's a great point to make. Um, I, I I think I think it, it kind of sounds like what what I'm saying is you're kind of inev- inevitably stuck with whatever your group opinion is. But uh, if you do kind of have to deal deal with different groups during the day, your your opinions might be 
uh, a bit more plastic than that. Huh. Um, the, I mean, the, 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 the Russia, the Russia thing is interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure if we're going to get some bipartisan investigation right. here. Um, well, <laughs> we'll see. I think, I think that goes, obviously that, that goes, the scope of that is, is a bit more than, than the effect that, that I'm talking about. Um, but, uh, I, I kind of, I kind of assume that, uh, it's, it's not, it's not going to be uh, a completely even handed investigation on, on either side. You know what? In fact, uh, let's get into that when we come back. Uh, just sure. one, one reason, because, um, one of the things I, I guess I, I want to help get your clarity on is, is morality. Um, I think a lot of people think morality is kind of what God taught them and they're, what they're inspired is right or wrong from their heart. But um, maybe, too, it's, it looks like our morality might be a little uh, maneuverable, shiftable, depending on the group we're with, the interpretation of what we feel is right or wrong. Um, it's, it's an interesting discussion. We're talking about morality, your choice, and uh, how, you know, sometimes it's not, you're not going by your feeling. You're, sometimes you're going to just go more by what you think you should do what others think you should do, or by simply what others want, you might just do the opposite. Interesting insights. We'll be back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today we are talking about morals and political polarization. Dr. Randy Stein is joining us. He's an assistant professor of marketing at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona and uh, also re- received his Ph.D. in social psychology from Yale University. He's helping us understand, really, I guess, some of our our um, our, our urges, our inclinations towards how we act and decision-making. Randy, thank you again for being with us. My pleasure. Talk about um, your research, because you've been, you've been, it's pretty interesting how and how and what you're measuring. Just walk us through. Yeah, so to to understand the the research that we're talking about this morning, uh, you have to know a little about a little bit about this thing called the Stroop effect, which if you've ever taken an undergraduate psychology class, is something you might have heard about uh, pretty pretty early on. It, may, it makes this basic point about how the brain makes decisions in, in this kind of counterintuitive way. Um, it's a it's a visual thing, so we're over the radio. I'll just I'll just have to describe it, but it works like this: uh, you see a word projected onto a screen. And you're just asked to name the color of the, that the word is printed in. So if you see a word printed in red, you're supposed to say red. If you see a word printed in blue, you're supposed to say blue. Seems easy. If that's, if, it's generally pretty easy, right? Until, yeah. And, yeah. So, so when, that, when the task starts, you might see something just like the word red printed in red or the word blue printed in blue. To name the color, it's really easy. It's really fast. Uh, the twist is that sometimes when they're doing that, the word that's displayed will be uh, opposing the, the color that's actually on the screen, right? So instead of the word red printed in red, you see the word blue printed in red. And again, you're asked to name the color. 
And what happens, which is kind of interesting, is that when the color and the word don't match, people have to pause for a split second before they're able to say the the name of the color. Mm. And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting that that happens because it should be something that's really, really easy to do. All you have to do is look at a color and name it. Um, but the idea here is that even though you ask to do something really simple, your brain st- really wants to say the word that's printed on the screen. Hmm. When you see the word blue, even though you're asked to name the color and not the word, you really want to say the word blue. Yeah. You that little split second to yeah. suppress that urge. Uh, and again, it's, it's a really simple task. There's not really a logical reason for, for you to be doing that, uh, but that's, that's the way the brain is set up nonetheless. So what I did was first I put people in that task, that what we call the Stroop task, and train them on that feeling. And I said, when you, when you see the, the word and, and the color don't match, uh, that's this feeling of kind of wanting to do two, two separate things at once. It's not necessarily a negative feeling. It's just this urge that's, that's not helping. It's this urge to do two different things at once. And I just kind of said, that, that, that's, this is a certain feeling. Remember that feeling. And then what I did was I had people answer a series of pretty inane questions about preferences. And they were things like, would you rather have a green car or a, or a silver car? Would you rather have a dirt devil vacuum or a pretty, pretty meaningless stuff? Or a Hoover vacuum. You know, your phone's uh, breaking in and out a little bit uh, there, Randy. Um, yeah, okay, keep going. Let's, let's see if it gets better. Sure. So, uh, so they were asked these, the series of, of two option questions. What kind of vacuum you want? You want Hoover or, or Dirt Devil? And after each question, they were told, also, by the way, uh, we gave these same questions to a, to a group of other people, and we're going to show you how those people answered the questions. And uh, what varied was who that group was. Hmm. So in one version of, of the study, you might have been told, hey, here's this vacuum question. Uh, by the way, when I gave the same question to a group of Hillary supporters, and this was all pre-election, uh, when I gave this question to a group of Hillary supporters, 80% of people said Hoover. Or you might have been told, when I gave this question to a bunch of Trump supporters, 80% said Hoover, right? Mm. So you had information on how a politically charged group answered the question. After that, I showed people the same set of questions again and just answered them to ask it again. So I said, just, just a second ago, I asked you, would you rather have a Dirt Devil or Hoover? Can you just tell me what you said again? Just give me the same answer. Um, the twist was I had people also, when they were calling those answers, report that same feeling from the Stroop task hmm. of wanting to do two separate things at once. And uh, what I found was Again, even though I'm asking the people the same exact question again, uh, I didn't ask them to to change their opinion or think about changing their opinion or evaluate the the group's opinion at all. Uh, Just knowing the group opinion did have some effect on that they felt when recalling their answer. Um, And uh, if it was a group that you identify with, so if you were a Hillary supporter and you heard the, uh, the opinions of Hillary supporters and you knew that you disagreed with them, uh, you felt an urge to change your opinion so that you, so that you matched the group. 
Interesting. Uh, they, they didn't actually change their opinion. I, I should I should point out uh, because I did just ask them. You know, what did you say a second ago? People are, are still able to to say that, but they do feel that urge to switch if they're disagreeing with a group they identify with, <laughs> um, and if it's a group that uh, you morally oppose, and, that, and that's that's a distinction I I want to make. Um, so if it's if you're a Hillary supporter and you were told about the opinions of Trump supporters and you really morally, you have a strong moral distaste for Trump supporters. Uh, if you agree with them, like I said, I, I want to make the distinction. It, it only happens if you have a strong moral distaste for them. Interesting. If you're, if you're kind of medium on Trump supporters, you don't like Trump, but you don't mind his, his supporters so much. This doesn't apply to you. It's just, it's just the people with the, uh, the strong moral distaste that feel the urge to essentially disagree with themselves if it means distancing themselves from, from the group they really don't like. And is this just survivability? Does this just promote your ability to stay in your group? Is, yeah. Is it so, kind of evolutionary? It's a survival instinct. Yeah, I think that that's, that's the, strong, the strong version of this argument, and, and I'd be inclined to, to agree with that. Uh, and, and the idea is, even though I'm asking you just to repeat an opinion that you said a second ago, the way we answer those questions is not just by using our, our own preferences. And even, even though it's not, quote, logical to disagree with yourself, disagree with what you said a second ago, it does make sense from a survival standpoint, uh, because if you do start walking around and talking to your friends about all the opinions. If you, if you are an anti-Trump person and you start talking to, to your friends about all the opinions you have that mass Trump supporters, that actually is probably going to have a pretty negative effect on you. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so in that sense, it's, it's not logical decision-making per se, um, but it is social decision-making and a social decision-making that might help you maintain good standing in, in your friend group. Um, because if you do start having very different opinions of them and opinions that match the moral opponents, you're probably eventually your friends aren't going to want to hang out with you anymore. Right, right. Uh, and that actually that actually would be a pretty bad thing. So it does make sense that these decisions are are at least part social and not entirely personal. Well, it, it almost shows you a little bit about maybe I don't know what the word would be, but like the contagion effect of. Uh, political environments where there might be a lot of people that are having this stoop effect uh, or the stroop effect going on, and they're and and they they have this dissonance, but they they give up their preference and kind of just go with what the flow is, and we don't say as much, and we don't push back, or maybe we do jump on board when we may not feel it as strongly. Yeah, I mean, I I guess that's uh, that's that, that's one of the the. Uh, the optimistic things that you, that you can take from this study is that e even when uh, people are engaging in politically char charged debates, um, we, we, I think we can reasonably assume that what the opinions people are expressing is not necessarily a complete representation of every, everything, every thought they have on the situation. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're probably saying the the things that will help reinforce their groups the most, but they might have considered evidence from the other side more than what they're actually saying. Let's on. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I think that it actually is 
I, th- I think some people feel like this is a like the 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 results of this study and a lot of moral psychology in general is is a pessimistic point of view. I actually don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, in part, just because any any discovery I think is is good, but uh, it's I mean it's it's, it's also saying that. Uh, there might be a bit more wiggle room for us to, us to agree than we realize. Yeah, absolutely, and and maybe too, there's incredible value in maybe sensitizing or conditioning people to notice the Stroop effect. <laughs> where if if I just notice I'm having that dissonance, that may be telling me where I may be in a moral collision. Yeah, and and I think that's also kind of maybe a a, a good news from from this study. Because uh, again, I, I did ask people to introspect yeah. on their own decision processes, and and they were able to to demonstrate uh, exactly what what this theory of, of, of morality is suggesting. Um, the 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 consequence here, I think, is you know if when you're talking to people about you know your views on on uh, on Russia uh, or or on healthcare or whatever the the, the topic of the day is. We probably don't normally uh, pay much attention to these competing urges. They probably are, aren't uh, aren't much of a aren't much on our radar. Again, because the the experience of forming opinions on healthcare does seem so overwhelmingly logical. Mm-hmm. We all we all have the experience of yeah. I've considered the evidence on whether or not the bill should pass, and the and of course it's the evidence that leads me to think that it should or should not be passed. Um, I, I think what my study suggests is if you really do sit down and pay attention to what's going on in your head while you're thinking through this, you might see some urges that, uh, that you wouldn't have ordinarily paid that much attention to. Yeah. And, and that, might, that, might, that might clue you in that, oh, I think I've, I thought I've, I've made this decision based on evidence, but really maybe I haven't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Well, Randy, we appreciate you. This is great insight. And uh, I agree with you. The more we understand about our morality and our pauses and our, you know, our uh, competing urges, as you called it, I think the better off we all are. Um, Again, his name, Dr. Randy Stein from the uh, marketing department or school at the California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, California. Interesting insight, folks. How are you making your choices? Are you even noticing that little hiccup, that little gap that goes on between your choices and, uh, you know, your urges for how you want to respond to certain things? Pay attention to that. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, a little Apple update, huh? Apple is reassuring customers that its systems have not been breached while a hacker or hackers threaten to remotely wipe hundreds of millions of iPhones of all their data, including photos, videos, and messages, right? The hackers are using an alleged cache of stolen email accounts and passwords as leverage in an attempt to extort the world's most valuable company, They claim they have access to as many as 559 million Apple email and iCloud accounts, right? (laughs) Yeah. Says the group calls itself the Turkish crime family. 
We're the Turkish crime family. They may not actually be from Turkey. Oh. They could be from anywhere. Could for, be that from, accent wasn't from Turkey either. They could be from Wisconsin. They said it would delete the alleged list to compromise login credentials only after Apple paid it 75000 in cryptocurrency, so Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, or $100,000 worth of iTunes gift cards. Hold on. Yeah. They're doing this all for $100,000 of iTunes they gift gi- cards? They've given Apple a deadline of April 7th to meet the deadline. Now, Apple says this is all, don't worry about it, we're not compromised, whatever. But then these people sent a bunch of the passwords to a, a website called Motherboard, who then started going through them, calling the people that were attached to them, texting them, that kind of thing. And the people were responding back like, yeah, these are our accounts. Mm. And so is it real? Is it not real? But the other side of it, you have 559 million accounts. Yeah. That is a huge number. If if those people were compromised, that would damage Apple incredibly. Well, maybe this is Apple. And then you're asking for $75,000 in Bitcoin or $100,000 in gift cards. It doesn't you make sense. You should ask for more money. Yeah. Well, Apple – They're really undercutting themselves. They're worth what? Billions. $80 billion or something. Yeah. They're and closing in on being the first trillion-dollar company. Apple? They were just valued at $750 billion. Apple? Yes. And so these guys are asking for $100,000, essentially. That's just a bite out of the Apple. So then there's question, are they doing this because they just don't have the technical prowess to actually follow through with the threat? Who, Apple? Or do they just have no ambitions in life that they're only asking for $100,000? Yeah, Apple. What do you think? Real, not real? I think it's real. But I I think it's a bunch of 12-year-olds. Yeah. Exactly. I really do. It's a bunch of 12-year-olds that don't know how good they got it here. But also, it might also be Apple trying to get everyone to upload everything on iCloud, Apple right. iCloud. Are these the same people that uh, told your wife that there are caramel M&Ms at Maverick right now? Oh, I love caramel apples, though. Do you hear an apple sound? I do, constantly here. It's annoying. I don't even like apples. So, yeah, so the Turkish crime family, as they call yeah. themselves, this from hackers. Yeah, some middle school in well, the, Wisconsin. They're asking for so little money, people yeah. are like, I don't understand what you're doing. We also want well, it's like, a skating pass to classic skating. Yeah. <laughs> Just kind of <laughs> And we want down. it now, or so, we're going to be done. I don't know if Apple's taking it seriously, but well, at least some of the evidence they've Maybe it's time for seen. everybody that's on Apple that they have they change their password. They, I don't know if that'll fix it. Oh, brother. They may have crazy. access beyond your password. Wait till a 12-year-old gets a hold of your password. So just, you know, try to save all the important stuff. All right. Well, let's take a break. Apple, good luck to you. Uh, we'll be back, folks, helping you uh, live healthier lives. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy Take a Walk in the Park Day. You go take a walk in the park. You take a walk. In the park. In the park. And take your kids. I'll take a walk, but only in the park. I love walking in the park. The it's park. not a walk in the park. 
The park I near my house has the uh, frisbee golf course. Oh yeah, so you kind of have to watch where you're going. Like you have to duck every once yeah, in a while. Yeah, that's not fun. Yeah. No, it is. It's pretty cool. My kids like, whoa, look at that, Dad! It's a flying saucer. I walk around campus. No, yeah. and I I love it because I see all these stressed students, and I'm like, <laughs> just you wait, wait till you're in my world and everything's stressful. It gets worse. and you kill to go back to school and just study. Right. Yeah. It was easy. Jeff, by the way, battling um, tired today. He's battling the tired bug. On Monday, he was battling the shrimp salad bug. Today, he's battling the lack of Z's bug. Which everybody is tired, Jeffrey. Everybody. He's asleep. He's he's asleep. Why do we try? Why? Why do we try? He's... He's either they're always cheering for him or he's sleeping. Today we're going to be talking about. Some, what, huh? Oh, you're back. So, somebody's cheering for me. Yeah. <laughs> Mom called. She said, "Jeffrey, you need to get more sleep." <laughs> we're going to be talking about redshirting our kindergartners. Should you make sure your child is the oldest in their grade? Hold them back mm-hmm. so that they're, I guess, they're the bully instead of the bullied. Well, this goes for sports. Because yeah. you want your kid to be bigger as they go to play sports against the other kids. It gives them an advantage. It's kind I of... mean, they would probably be more confident if they're the older one. So we, we, this is actually a replay of an interview we did with Lori Day. It's really interesting because no. it, it goes against what you would think. So you're, you're redshirting the uh, next part of the show. Kind of. Oh, wow. Yeah, if you want to look at it that way. I do. You've got a red. You both have red shirts Mine's on. Mine's pink. A hue of red. Mm. He's got a oh, point there. Boy, yeah. Mm. He's got you there. He knows his hues. <laughs> That's amazing. We've got a lot to cover today, um, including uh, drive-through funeral homes. Now, we've got a, a report uh, talking really? about that coming up. Mm. The the uh, it, it it may not be as good as it sounds. Because it, it sounds real good. <laughs> it may have gotten away from somebody. We'll we'll get into that story mm. up next. Um, but first, let's get to the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country we should be worried about? Republican lawmakers in North Carolina announced late Wednesday that they have reached an agreement to repeal the state law prohibiting transgender people from using bathrooms that correspond to their gender identities. The deal reached with Democratic Governor Roy Cooper, an outspoken opponent of the controversial law, came as the state was on the verge of losing its rights to host the NCAA basketball championships over the legislation. The deal would repeal HB2, leaving bathroom regulation to the state, and require a memorandum on similar ordinances, or excuse me, a moratorium on similar ordinances until December 1st of 2020. The AP earlier reported that the state could lose as much as three, or has lost as much as $3.7 billion in revenue because of the bathroom ban, which might be the motivation here is wow. the lost revenue to the state. Losing the money. The uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee has seven full-time professional staff members working to evaluate Russian intelligence uh, information documents related to the committee's investigation into Russian election interference. Uh, this is from Chairman Burr of North Carolina. He said this on Wednesday. He said, this investigation scope will go wherever the intelligence leads. He says that at a press conference Wednesday, Burr appealed, appearing with his vice chairman, Mark Werner of Virginia. A Democrat said the committee has received an unprecedented amount of documents. 
noting that staffers will uh, have dedicated to are dedicated to reviewing them and are sifting through thousands of documents as they uh, were having this press conference. Warner noted that Russia may have attempted to influence the 2016 elections by indirectly having Russian-linked bots, which are computer programs, direct fake news stories at key swing states, including Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. They talked about uh, a group of 1,000 hackers in Russia who purposely were just making up fake stories about Hillary Clinton because that's who they decided to go after that day. Oh, okay. And it was stuff on her, remember all the turmoil around her health? Yeah. And all the stories that all of a sudden popped up about, you know, different ailments or sicknesses that she had. They're thinking a lot of that was motivated through this group by kicking oh, the stuff okay. out and people latching onto it. So Any man, relation to the Turkish... The uh, Turkish crime family? Crime family? No, they just take Apple iCloud passwords. So okay. we'll see how that works. Just check. According to the New York Times, Ivanka Trump has officially become a government employee in her father's administration. She will be an unpaid advisor, and her title will be assistant to the president. So there you go. Uh, she's generic. going to advise him. Ivanka yeah. said in a statement on Wednesday that she's doing it so that she would fall under the same ethics rules as other federal employees. I think hoping to alleviate any concern that she was doing something else. Yeah, nefarious. Something so nefarious. she just, that's good. That's good. She's, she she's, had previously said that she uh, did not want to act in any formal administrative capacity in her father's administration, but apparently those things change. Well, so a lot of things have changed in the past 70 days. Right. Absolutely. And finally, Italian state police have arrested 34 members of the Sardinia Crime Organization for attempting to steal the corpse of a famous famous automaker, Enzo Ferrari, in order to blackmail his family. Oh, boy. The gangster's plot was extraordinarily complicated, and their capture involved helicopters and parachute regiment officers. Wow. Ferrari died in 1988 at the age of 90. His body is entombed above ground at a uh, cemetery in Modena, Italy, where it rests behind an iron gate. His legacy lives on as the company continues to build some of the world's fastest and most expensive cars. Police learned of the plot to steal Ferrari's body during an investigation into arms and drug trafficking. More than 300 officers assisted into the arrest. Wow. Because they're trying to steal the body. Why are they... Just let him rest. Well, they wanted to extort the family first, then they I let know, him rest. but come on. <laughs> they're trying to... Steal a body. Yeah. Get some money. Maybe, you know, like the Apple people extorting Apple, maybe maybe 100000 in right. gift cards. Yeah, maybe they wanted some gift cards. I think I'd go for a Ferrari. Do you think they wanted, like, I don't know, Olive Garden gift cards? They're in <laughs> yeah. Italy. <laughs> yeah. I'd hold out for, like, Ruth Chris or something. Oh, yeah. Go something big. But not Chili's. <laughs> Why? Seems rude. What I did, just think big. What did Chili's do to you? Oh, they uh, blew through some things. Mm. Like my money and yeah, they, yeah, we'll stop there. That's good. That's good. Um, apparently, the uh, Price Waterhouse Coopers people, are no lo- they're no longer going to have any telephones backstage. They're not allowing telephones or uh, smartphones backstage anymore. I read that, yeah. Well, a little distracted last time, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it got away from them. Mm. Just, 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 I don't, I don't remember what the issue was. It just got weird. I, something happened. And those two accountants are no longer allowed to hold that position, right? Yeah, weren't they? Yeah, their bars were. They, they were. They would lost their rank. Yeah. But they are still. The academy is still going to work with PwC. 
Of course. Yeah. They've been doing it forever. Doing it forever. Hey, um, do you think people will tune in next year just to see if something like that happens again? Probably. That's probably the only reason. And it may very well because you know how you're so focused on something. Okay, don't do this wrong. Don't do this wrong. Don't oh, do this. And then, the and then you, you do know, it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Yeah. I bet they're going to have other ways of doing it. It seems like they have ways of making you get the Academy Award. Maybe right. we don't need an envelope anymore. Maybe you just need a little iPad. Hmm. And they can control the iPad. And then you have a director that just puts the iPad message out. And the winner goes to, and they can even have it sound like you're opening something like, whoosh. But can you imagine the connectivity problems they have in that building with all those cell phones? Everybody trying to access the Wi-Fi. Maybe they just put a cord on it. (laughs) Like the old days. Just plug it in. Just plug it in. Have a cord. Hardwire it. Everyone else, then they cut everyone else's off. I don't know. They they have uh, really good Wi-Fi connections at all the recent Super Bowls. Yeah. And they're out there actually trying to get people to make videos and do the, the social media thing during the game. They're really trying to push that. So they should be able to do that I bet, at the yeah, Academy yeah, Awards. Yeah, Just put a, their own cell phone antenna right there in the room. I don't get Just it. Just to radiate everybody. It would be awesome. I mean if we can have a drive through viewing at a funeral home, why can't we have the Oscars go off without a hitch? See, I'm all for this. Okay. I don't want to actually walk into the funeral home anymore. Yeah, some people get a little weirded out by having a dead body there. I mean, you've well, kind of—it's it's not even that. It's just everyone's so sad. It's just kind of a downer. So you'd rather, you'd rather kind of just wait in the car. <laughs> yeah, that. Just tell him I said hi. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, when Ryan Bernard bought an old bank building with plans to ultimately turn it into a funeral home, he knew what he was going to do with the drive-through window. You know, he 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 knew. He knew he was going to have an optional drive-through viewing feature. Which sounds so strange. It allows loved ones to pay their final respects from inside their car. Imagine being in the front seat of your own car, AC cranked with a Coke in the drink holder, mm. as you say goodbye to Uncle Eddie. But I mean, and he sort of tipped up. In the I guess window. They, I guess they like kind of angle him a little <laughs> bit. So oh, there's there's Uncle Eddie. Hey, pass me the fries. <laughs> so strange. <laughs> Bernard said that he opened his funeral home in January, and since then, six families have selected the drive-through option. The service is part of the funeral packages and offered at no additional charge. The drive-through service typically lasts one hour. A black and gold sign that reads "Drive-through viewing" directs visitors to a driveway where they are greeted by an employee holding an iPad, and the iPad serves an elect- as an electronic update to the pen and paper guest book, mm. so they can sign into the guest book. Maybe they could take a selfie of the family in the car. Like, hey. Hey, Uncle Eddie. We love you. And then after check-in, the visitors drive through a gated area with flat concrete overhang uh, offers shade and privacy as the guests peer into the window to pay their final respects. Just peer in. And they have the little teller drawer. <laughs> if, you want, if you want to leave something. He's leave it for Uncle no, Eddie. No, they have one of those vacuum tubes. Yeah, <laughs> that's so weird. Uh, each car gets approximately three minutes alone with the body, huh? In the window, right. and it's honestly think about it. It's safer for the body. It's safer for it's a it's a great service. Um, no one's po- poking Uncle Eddie in the face. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And then, the, but then there's the car behind you. Honk honk. Come on, move it. 
get my Are you done? Some guy's got to get his dry cleaning. He's on a on the time here. Let's go. Hey, do you guys have a sucker for my kids? <laughs> they won't be quiet until we get them a sucker. Well, anyway, it seems like this would be a slam dunk idea. But as I said, only six families have selected this drive through option. This might be due to the fact that one of those six drive through viewings didn't go so well. Hello there. Welcome to the drive view. How are you today? I'm fine. Please accept our condolences for your loss. Uh, can you please tell me who you've come to see? He was the son of a poor Italian immigrant whose dream it was to own... Uh, actually, sir, I just need the first and last name of the deceased. Oh, I have come to pay my respects to Johnny Two-Time Gambino. May he rest in peace. Let me see, Gambino, Gambino... Oh, yes, uh, he's just at the next window. Uh, would you like a complimentary specialty drink for your refreshment during the viewing? No. Wait, do you have coconut mango? We sure do, sir. All right, I'll have one. All righty, let me just fill that up for you. Here you go, sir. I hope you have a peaceful viewing experience. Thank you. Huh? There he is. You were the son of a poor Italian immigrant whose dream it was to own a successful marble rye business and pass it on to you, Johnny Two-Time Gambino. May you rest... Wait a minute. Who am I looking at here? This is an old lady. Oh, sorry about that, sir. I told you the wrong window. Uh, Mr. Gambino is at the next window. There he is. You were the son of a poor Italian immigrant whose dream it was to own a successful marble rye business and pass it on to you, Johnny Two-Time Gambino. May you rest in peace. And now I have come seeking my own peace, for it was I who informed on you to the police, which led to the shootout that sent you to this early sleep. Forgive me, Johnny. What the... I knew it was you. Mm. What is this, coconut mango? Mm, pretty good. Wow. Wow. That had a twist. <clears throat> a was... coconut mango twist. I didn't know that they were going to serve slushies at the drive-thru funeral viewing. That's really quite the upgrade on the normal funeral you could go to. So hold on. Was Mr. Gambino not dead? Yeah, it was a ploy. He was trying to, he was to, trying to root the, out who, yeah. who had uh, stabbed Rapped, him in the back. Trapped the rat. It was yeah. a rat trap. Wow, that's intense. By the way, Ned Flanders still working. Apparently. <laughs> that's really good. That's really good. Wow. Well, See right there, it's a whole commentary on loyalty yeah. and about you know snitches. Yeah, you don't trust a snitch. Right. I wonder if that guy was from the Turkish... Uh, crime family? Crime family. Could be. Mm. He sounded nefarious. Yeah. He sounded not quite Turkish. Right. And what's with the soundtrack? Did he have it? Did he like carry his own soundtrack to talk about Mr. Gambino? Or was that just his? I didn't fully trust the, the employee. Maybe he was in on it. Yeah. He had to have been. And he sent him to that the wrong one first. And who was that woman at window number one? We don't know. Right. Well, how she related. Right. Mm. Weird. I think there are more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. 
This is crazy. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an option. They're not saying you have to do it. But if you are going to have a funeral and a viewing, that's one option if, you know, if you're in Memphis. If you're not in Memphis, don't worry about it. This probably won't catch up. These on. are popping up in different places across the country apparently. Yeah. Yeah. I have a feeling it's going to be a really slow pop. Okay. Slow to adopt. Uh, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're talking red-shirting our kindergartners. Red-shirting, remember, um, the, uh, try, trying to extend a player's play, you know, uh, playability by a year by just holding them back. Should we hold back our kindergartners? You know, make sure that they're the oldest in the grade. Is that the advantage they need to get ahead? Interesting uh, insight up next. Stick with it. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, redshirting is a strategy used in collegiate sports to allow players to extend their playability and their ability to play in the NCAA by a year or so. You know, basically a player doesn't play on game days but will train and practice with the team. The practice, however, has recently been expanding to include, believe it or not, kindergartners. Typically in the U.S., children begin kindergarten at five years old. Lately, however, some parents have been redshirting their kids so they don't start kindergarten until they are six. And our guest today uh, is Lori Day. She's an educational consultant from the website LoriDayConsulting.com. She joins us now from Massachusetts to talk about the pros and cons of holding your children back um, in, in starting kindergarten. Lori Day, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. You wrote a, a, an interesting article um, on this in the Huffington Post. Uh, and so so kind of give us give us the groundwork of this. Why Why are people, why are parents choosing to even think about holding their kids back? We were kind of excited to get our kids going and <laughs> maturing, supposedly. Absolutely. Uh, my youngest brother has an August 30th birthday, and today would very, very likely be redshirted, but certainly back in the uh, late 60s, um, no, you wanted your child to go ahead and go on to school and have all kinds of interesting things to right. do, and so this has changed very much. Is it I mean, in redshirting in college, it, it actually it's an advantage because the freshmen can get some experience. They just wouldn't play in games. They can still be a part of the team and and grow and learn. Is is the idea though with our children by holding them back? Um, they're I, to me, I see it as an advantage in your height, in your size. If they're if your mm-hmm. kid's a little bigger, does it have other benefits? Well, it does. I mean, um, it certainly has social benefits, and it also has benefits in terms of if a child enters kindergarten later at six rather than at five, um, they're much better able to um, focus and concentrate and maintain attention, sit still, um, and do the kinds of things that are expected of them in the new kindergarten that we have now, because kindergarten itself has changed very much. The academic focus um, has dripped down into the kindergarten year. It, it used to be a child's first year of school. Um, and now, of course, most children have had some sort of preschool or daycare experience. And we have 
um, the pressure of standardized testing, and academics are starting younger and younger. So basically we have a problem now where rather than schools being ready for kids, kids need to be ready for school. Mm. And so for some kids, especially young ones, especially young boys, parents don't feel they're ready to handle the demands of what kindergarten has become and that they will actually have a benefit that accrues to them over the next 13 years of their schooling if they hold them back to start kindergarten later um, and enter college older rather than younger. Wow. And I mean, and there's there's some actually some interesting corollary data in uh, the very popular book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers. Right about like the hockey teams that absolutely that have the older players they they end up I guess they were held back uh, mm-hmm. but they got to but that gave them the ability to um, kind of mature to play longer with better teams and it ended up becoming a major force in creating a lot of professional hockey players. Right. It kind of started hockey. Um, that was the sport where you saw it happening the most often and also. Um, the most extreme in terms of um, having kids with birthdays in January, February, or March um, being uh, held back, you know, when they would normally be kind of right in the middle age-wise for their grade, um, holding them back made them quite a bit older and more physically developed and more athletically um, strong and coordinated. Uh, And so, you know, it was it was doing something to a child that affected all of their schooling and many things about their life purely for an athletic advantage. Mm. Uh, And there's things that parents um, need to be thinking about when the kids are in pre-kindergarten and the decisions being made that have to do with kind of all of these early school years, not just what's going to happen when they hopefully are playing Division I hockey. Right, exactly. Maybe they're playing saxophone. You really don't know what these kids are going to be doing. And so the decisions parents make that young on their behalf in some ways can be seen as taking a year of their life for no reason. Right. Um, And I think it needs to be looked at more carefully. Well, I mean, because there's a social side to all of this too, right? And developmental side, it seems like it it couldn't hurt to hold them back socially and academically um, if if they're going to be growing and developing and being more prepared to handle the stresses and all of the pressures. So what what is the research saying about all of this? Well, the research is saying that if you're holding a child back um, because of uh, they're chronologically young, they have social uh, maturing to do, which we see more with boys than girls, um, that holding them back can be very helpful because they enter school on a stronger footing that they are more likely to maintain. Whereas if you go ahead and send them to school young and immature, um, they're at risk of turning off to school because they're fidgety, they're getting scolded a lot, they're having a lot more trouble doing the tasks their peers are doing, and that can set the stage for a negative school experience for them forever. Oh, yeah. So for those kids, it's a, it's a really good idea um, to hold them back. Um, but if that's not the reason you're doing it, and academically they're ready, and they have the um, things that they need to be good students, the, those those habits of mind, as I call them, which are like the ability to listen and follow directions and work in a group and pay attention, if those things are developed normally, then they should go ahead and go to school. Um, there's, you know, athletic reasons should not be the reason you, right. know, that you hold them back. So if it's developmentally appropriate... Um, There are studies that show that kids that are held back have an initial 
academic advantage, particularly with literacy. Um, they will, you know, enter kindergarten older and therefore read sooner and um, appear to be doing, you know, at least on grade level or above grade level. But by the third or fourth grade, those advantages tend to wash out. Mm. And I've seen it myself because I worked in schools for over 25 years and I watched what happened with these kids where at first they had that advantage. But then whatever their ability was going to be, um, developmentally, the kids were all kind of caught up, and it, we weren't seeing issues of, of development anymore by third or fourth grade. And so the initial advantage sometimes disappeared. Now, if a child um, was being held back because of an undiagnosed learning disability, um, then what would happen is you would have a child who was a year older who still had that learning disability right. that still needed to be addressed. And it made no difference that you redshirted them. So you really need to understand what is going on with your child when you, when you make the decision. And sometimes getting professional advice is a good idea if, as a parent, you don't know what to do. I mean, I have a child that was um, socially anxious, anxious, and it was, it was kindergarten where we kind of realized it. Uh, yep. His preschools didn't push him in that way that he felt – awkward or weird. But in a way, I, I look at it like that would have been maybe a perfect time to go address some of the social anxieties. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and because it did, it ended up skewing his view of education and right. and school. And, and mm-hmm, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so yet you, as, as yeah. a 18-year-old, he really – he's thriving now because he can kind of do – he can do it his way and at his pace and at his interest level. Right. And I think what parents are doing now is playing it safe so that, like you, if they are having those kinds of of questions about their child, they're um, making the conservative decision to hold them back because they know that that is harder to do later Mm -hmm. because it comes with a social stigma, how to do it, unless you change schools or move or go to private school, like holding your child back in public school um, later on oh. is, is very difficult to do. So yeah. they think to themselves, well, if we may have to do it, let's do it now when the kid won't notice, when they'll get the benefit of being older for all of those years, and what do you really have to lose and so forth. So I think that's part of the reason that we're seeing more of it now is just parents playing it safe and also recognizing that the demands of kindergarten have changed. They mm. have gone up. And so that influences them as well. Why aren't we, um, if it's so advantageous, kind of in a way, physically, socially, emotionally, um, why aren't we just moving kindergarten back for everyone? Um, you mean moving it to a later age, yeah. starting at age six. Yeah, you know, like well, yeah, why, why aren't we do just that? Yeah, it seems like you that. don't even start school till age seven, particularly the Scandinavian countries. Um, one of the reasons, and um, we can talk about this in a couple of ways, but one of the reasons is that public school, when public school starts, is the time when working parents finally have free childcare because right. their child's in school, and so. Um, we have a situation already where middle class and upper middle class parents can make the decision about what's best for their child. And if that's to hold them back, they can afford the extra year of preschool or daycare 
before school starts, while working class and poor families cannot, and that contributes to the achievement gap that we see, because they're desperate. They're waiting for school to start so that they're not having to pay for childcare while they work. So to move it down the road another year, one reason that would be problematic is financially for so many families, it, it just really is not feasible. Also, the same thing would continue happening, the jockeying around being older. Someone is always going to be the youngest no matter when school starts. And so the, the, the issues that we have now would just be put off by a year, but the same thing would happen. So right. I don't see any reason to no. do it. Well, and, and again, yeah, the disparity of the, the, I mean, the, in, the, the people that lower income that can't afford it, it really is – you can see how it kind of is the building, too, of – you know, a, a really prepared or more prepared student. It's almost you can see the parents kind of behind the scenes trying to get their child on the fast track. And oh, definitely, oh, it's incredible. Definitely, I mean, and it creates a lot of problems. You know, if you if you kind of fly this at thirty thousand feet, and you you don't just look at each child individually, which which you should, and each parent that's their job is to yeah. look after their kid. But if you look at it from a societal level. Um, we now have classes with uh, not a 12-month age span, but more like an 18-month age span. And that makes um, classroom management um, much more difficult for teachers. And we expect so much more of teachers in terms of differentiated instruction. And so now they have to differentiate instruction to kids that are 18 months apart in age, not 12 months. And so it's a really crazy situation that we have that – um, is very difficult uh, for the classroom teacher, and there's all kinds of effects on the standardized testing, and we have teacher evaluations t- tied to those outcomes. So we have real justice issues for teachers oh, wow. um, because this is happening. So it, it's, it's a very broad um, topic to think about. That's a big issue, and it's not just – that's why you almost need to do it one child at a time, your child – uh, and, and I guess that's what has to happen. The parents have to mm-hmm. work on their children. Um, but that doesn't always happen, too, equally over everybody. Let's let's take a break. We're speaking with Lori Day from LoriDayConsulting.com. Lori is an educational consultant and uh, wrote a really intriguing article in the Huffington Post called Redshirting in the Age of Academic Kindergarten. Should you hold your child back? She gives you the pros, the cons, uh, just a wonderful read. Um, We'll take a break. Come back, continue this discussion with Lori Day. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Love this song. Send me on my way by Rusted Root. But don't send me too early, Mom. Let me just, let me grow a little older before you send me to kindergarten. Today we're talking about redshirting your kindergartner. Should you hold your kids back a year, um, you know, to, to kind of get them on the right path, make sure they've matured socially, make sure, you know, mentally they're there, psychologically they're where they need to be? Um, I think in an idyllic world, it sounds like a really great idea. You're still going to have to make the decision one child at a time. What's in the best interest of your child? Joining us on the phone from Massachusetts, Lori Day from Lori Day Consulting. She's an educational consultant and the author of a book that, or an article we found on um, 
Huffington Post about red shirting. Should you hold your kids back? Um, interesting, interesting topic. Uh, Lori Day, welcome back to the show. Yes, happy to be here. Great to have you. Talk to me about, um, you, you started mentioning it before the break, but if we if we release all of these more mature, socially, you know, v- more um, healthy, more mentally, I guess, strong and ready to learn children on a new on a kindergarten teacher, it seems like she may not be able to with like you were saying, too, there's an 18 month span between the oldest and the youngest. If we're holding some of them back, how on earth does a teacher keep that? Some of them stimulated and some of them quiet. And how do they manage all of that? Well, it's really not easy. And um, I've talked to a lot of teachers about this in my career, um, certainly in recent years as it's gotten to be more common. And um, what teachers will tell you is that they have mixed feelings about the whole situation. Um, On the one hand, when they get red-shirted kids that are six years old coming into kindergarten, they will be the first to admit that those kids have a greater ability to follow directions and a greater ability to sit still. And, you know, we expect that a lot more of kids than we should, um, and teachers don't like it, but it's, it's out of their control what they're expected to do in terms of how much academics they have to fit into the day and how little recess they're able to give. Right. So when they get the older kids, those kids are easier. Um, but the problem is that when you then have this big span where there's parents who don't redshirt their kids and they have summer birthdays and they might be boys with summer birthdays that are, you know, um, chronologically and emotionally young, um, when they're trying to deal with managing the behavior of the class and teaching social skills and um, so forth, it's really hard because developmentally your oldest child and your youngest child are in very different places. Um, The youngest children often feel intimidated by the older, bigger children in the classroom who have the natural leadership abilities often but can sometimes drown out their voices and physically feel intimidating to them. And so that's very difficult for teachers. Um, And so is, like you say, differentiating instruction because if you have older kids that are ready for more and they're already reading um, and then you have younger kids who haven't cracked the code at all, um, it's just a much bigger span of development that they have to deal with. And so they kind of like the older kids that are a little bit more ready for what they're being forced to do, um, but they don't like the breadth in age that lands on them uh, that they have to deal with. Mm. So I guess part of this is you, you might also need to look at your school system and where you're going to be sending the child. Are they able to handle it? What's the best solution? Maybe you might move to a private school if you didn't think a certain school could handle it or maybe move to a really, you know, a, a program that's that's a little more able to take your child's d- distinct and specific needs into account. Right. Well, the private school question, and I worked many years in private schools, you know, as well as public, so I, I can kind of yeah. talk about both of those. But the, the private school situation is interesting because for the mainstream private schools, the ones that are competitive to get into, the ones that get many more applications than, than seats, they prefer the kids to be even older. Um, they're competing with each other. Um, they're complete competing over college entrance. They're wow. competing over college prep, all of that. And so um, those schools are not going to be taking a younger kid. They, they always right. ask them or almost always ask them to repeat or to, or to be redshirted if they're in pre-K. 
other private schools that are not doing as well, that have open seats, that are kind of suffering with enrollment, will do the opposite. And they will consider a child who misses that September 1st cutoff and the parents really want them to go. Maybe they're an early reader or they need the child care. Um, those private schools will take a child with a September, October, November birthday and let them start kindergarten. And then they're super, super young hmm. because they're in there with all the kids that are a year older and then the ones that were redshirted as well. And sometimes they do it strategically, um, intending only to do that for a year or two so that then they can show up at their own public school and say, here's Johnny. He's going into second grade. Yeah. And he's really young, and it's wow. a way of getting around the cutoff if, if a parent wants to do that. But for other private schools, it's a no-go. They won't even consider your kid. So they're all different in that respect. Oh. In terms of public school systems, um, certainly in your more affluent suburban towns, there's more redshirting because people can't afford it because people are more competitive. And they're more, you know, thinking about sports and all these kinds of things like we started out yeah. this segment talking about. So um, you can move if you can figure it out, if you, if you know who to talk to and you, and you get a sense of it. Um, but, you know, you're going to be facing this in one way or another kind of, of anywhere. And it really should be what is the best thing for your own child because as much as I'd like everybody to sort of solve the achievement gap between the rich and the poor by kind of doing what's right – um, it doesn't make sense for individual children a lot of the time. Yeah, you, and, and it's yeah, and you want the best for your child. Start there, right. and then we can work on you know equality or equity other ways, I guess. But okay, so if I'm a parent and I'm trying to make this decision, walk me through the my thought process. What what should I be thinking about, and 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 tell me how I should decide what to do with my child. Okay, well. Um, in my opinion, if your child has a fall or winter birthday or even early spring, you have nothing to think about. <laughs> you send your child to kindergarten um, because it, it would be, unless there's just some extreme reason, I'll tell you, I, I, I had a very sad experience once in working with a family with a child with cancer. Oh. And because of the cancer and the chemotherapy, this child lost a whole year of his life and needed to start kindergarten when he could start kindergarten and he was much, much older. So that's an extreme kind of a situation. Um, I think for the average kid that's already old for the grade, you send them to school. If it's a summer birthday, possibly for very immature kids, a spring birthday, um, what you would be doing is thinking about how are they doing right now in their pre-K year? Because they're either in daycare or nursery school or preschool, and you have a teacher you can talk to and you get reports. You know, they're usually not graded, but they're narrative-style report cards, and they often have check boxes that are very developmental in nature, like, you know, um, is, is approaching this skill, is, is meeting the skill, is excelling at the skill. Uh, so you have a sense of how ready your child is based on the data of, of how they're actually doing in school now, and you certainly can talk with your preschool teacher or the director of your program and ask the question, do you think my child should go ahead and go, or would you recommend that they stay back? That's who knows your child best in a group, in a school setting every day. Right. And so then you need to do that. Let, let me your just ask you about friends really fast, Lori, because my – like. I, I see in my neighborhoods where I live, your friends and your neighbors across the street and your kids are best friends that yep. you think, oh, yeah, let, yeah, they should just go. But 
just because your child has a friend doesn't mean educationally this it wouldn't be better to hold him back. That's correct. And you shouldn't make the decision based on friends because at that age, kids will um, often feel, feel something negative about it, but they're very resilient. They bounce back. If you present the decision confidently with, and, and you're not fraught with anxiety over it in front of them, um, they generally are going to buy in and adapt pretty quickly. That's not true when they get older. Right. That's why doing it, if you're going to do it while they're young, is better. Um, so uh, the other thing you can do is all children at this age, in the, in the, uh, at the end of the school year, May or June, are going to go through kindergarten screening in your public school system, often at the actual elementary school where they would attend. Hmm. And so the results of the kindergarten screening give you even more information about where your child is developmentally and how ready they are for school. So between that and how they're functioning currently in pre-K, that gives you a really good idea about what to do. Now, if your child has something about them that's not just developmental, but there's something going on, they're on the spectrum, um, or perhaps they're looking like they possibly have some sort of expressive language disability or language-based learning disability or something isn't quite right neurologically and they may have a learning disability, then you're going to want to get an evaluation and you're, you're going to want more information about how your child is doing so that you have that to help you decide whether to send them or to, or to keep them back, whether um, keeping them back would be helpful or would make no difference, but either way, they're going to need support, right? So whether they enter school now or later, if there's a learning disability going on, um, documenting that and, and getting recommendations and um, lining up accommodations within the school in advance is the best thing you can do before they actually even step foot in September. You know what you're, ex- year. you're explaining, Lori, like parents need to be a little more objective of their child. And it's almost like we kind of just all get in lockstep. And because they were all in the preschool class together... Um, and they all, you know, went to kinder music and learned music together. Uh-huh. They all ought to naturally just – and they play Little League, whatever. We all ought to naturally just go to school together. But every parent, it sounds like what you're saying, and I guess this is kind of the role of an educational consultant, is we, we need to objectively look at our child and say, is he ready? Is she ready? Does she have what it takes? Is she where she needs to be maturity-wise? Does she have a learning disability or an emotional issue? I mean, just really look at our kids before we just enter them into the school system. Right. If, if we have any kind of reservation or the teacher is expressing any kind of reservation about the child going to kindergarten, um, that's true. And um, just to clarify, um, most educational consultants – are not also educational psychologists, um, which I am. And so I'm actually speaking more as an educational psychologist in this interview than an educational consultant. And um, educational consultants generally help with applying to private schools, with deciding what's the best school match and so forth, which I do. But understanding uh, a child's learning style and development is more in the realm of what a psychologist does. So there's a school psychologist that's at in the, in the public school um, system that your child would go to, and there's also people that work privately. So if you're talking about that type of evaluation, you're really not talking about a consultant. You're talking mm. about a psychologist. Yeah, good stuff. And if they want to reach you and find out more about what you're doing, Lori, they just go to lauridayconsulting.com. 
That's right. All my contact information is there. And um, because I've written a number of articles about this, I do get a lot of calls about it from people who want um, to hire me just briefly to discuss the, the pros and cons and, and the specifics yeah. of their child. And I'm happy to read um, report cards and neuropsychs and all different kinds of uh, testing scores and help parents decide if, well, if that's what um, their challenge is. But there's also many free ways of doing that um, that I've already discussed. And I've seen on your site, too, there's a lot of articles, too, that are very valuable about just making some of these decisions, great books that kids can read. I mean, wonderful yep. educational tools as well. We appreciate you. Lori Day from LoriDayConsulting.com and uh, your insight about red shirting or holding our children back. Excellent stuff. Appreciate you. Alrighty. And Thank you so much for having me. You bet. And all of us, folks, th- these are your kids, for heaven's sakes, right? These are your little babies. Um, maybe we ought to just slow it down, a, just, a, just a titch, just slow it down and try to figure out what's in the best interest of your child at that stage of their life. Um, and maybe kind of even reevaluate every year, not like you would pull them back, you know, years into this. Uh, school process and education process, but let's let's make conscientious decisions. Let's not just do it because that's just what you do. These are individuals, right? These are real human beings with a real future uh, that needs to grow and develop. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The drop. We had to wait for the drop. When we get sick, uh, you know, what's the first thing we do? Well, we may try some at-home remedies. Maybe go, you know, get some over-the-counter meds to help us out. Eventually, you'll have to go to the doctor's office. Do we even think twice about how much access to medical care and technology we have? Probably not. Caitlin Thomas is here with us this morning to take us back in time to remember some of the greatest medical discoveries and help us have a little more appreciation for our doctors. Yes. Hello, Caitlin. Good morning. Really quick. Yeah. This is what happened. I was on Facebook and I saw this article, this video come up, and they were talking about, I am not kidding you, this year in 2017, they will be performing the first head transplant surgery. Holy cow. This is like the prayer of so many women. <laughs> so they're taking the head off of a man who's a terminally ill and he's in a wheelchair and they're apparently going to take his head and transplant it onto another so healthier So from body. the neck up, they the will then up. transfer it over to a healthy not terminally ill body. Well, now let me get this straight. Would that not automatically mean that he'll be in a wheelchair cuz he'll be a quadriplegic? No, apparent well there's apparently his it's his, his brain's fine. He's just paralyzed. Well, so, so how do you? But how do you reattach the head? Didn't you see this episode of Tales from the Crypt? <laughs> but I mean, it looks pretty incredible. That's amazing. It's like, a head transplant. I mean, I don't know if it'll work, but he's dying anyway. Well, we've so talked I guess about face transplants. Okay. We've talked about right. Yeah. They've done all these amazing. Crazy. Like, um, imagine the possibilities if this were to become successful. Maybe in another fifteen years, if they could actually do this, cancer uh, patients could well, be healthy. Well, then you take somebody that's had a head injury in a car accident, put them on a and different you transplant body. a. Head to that body and bada boom, bada bing. Right. It's just, it's kind of, phenom- it's a little bit scary, but a little phenomenal yeah, too. that's crazy. That's crazy. So then I got thinking about what are all the other things that have happened in the past medically, you know, that we take for granted because we've just always had it. And so I found, I thought of this. What about anesthesia, anesthetics? Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? The, imagine the not before. having that. We've had that forever. Um, apparently it was discovered in the 19th century. So We talked yesterday or a couple days ago about 
you can now stay awake during your surgeries. Right. It's still not feeling anything. Yeah. I don't want to stay awake. But it's, I no. guess it's safer. Yeah. You could have a drink, maybe Just sit back, relax, watch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> chips and salsa. Yeah. Um, the MMR vaccine. Yeah. You know, We've which is controversial right now. We've pretty much gotten right rid now. of but mumps and rubella and measles. measles, and they're no longer killing people well, and it's in starting, the United and States. Unfortunately, it's starting to come back because people aren't having the vaccine, but it's a pretty incredible thing, just vaccines in general, that we can, That's right. you know, Herd vaccination. Yeah, these diseases. Uh, what about x-rays? Oh, yeah. We've just always had those, but can you imagine the first person? I guess his name was, oh, something, he was German. He, but he, he died of like, uh, radiation poisoning. <laughs> but he just discovered that his cathode ray tube could produce some unusual images. That's literally where I, it started. I've sat there while they were setting my son's arm with a live X-ray that you can actually you could see so the they could bone watch, make sure and they could it move right. it exactly where they needed to, and then they set it, Ooh. and it was all under a full live. X-ray. That's pretty amazing. It's totally amazing. Like, what would we do without X-rays? Well, we'd have crooked arms and throw crooked wicked curveballs. We would never get those cool photos of when they find weird yeah, things yeah. inside people. Look, I found a screw. <laughs> I found a screw. Um, one other one that I think is really amazing is IVF. So yeah, about totally. All the, the couples or just all of the women that can't, that struggle with infertility. And now we have this amazing thing where IVF is becoming more and more successful. That's right. I mean, it's still largely expensive, but I mean. But I mean, to have a baby, if you couldn't have a baby and. And you want to have a baby? Uh-huh. It's, it's amazing. Awesome. I mean, think of how many people have just mourned not having a child right. of, that was theirs, that right. they felt like came, you know, that was theirs. Uh-huh. But now all of a sudden you've got, boy. It's pretty amazing. You also get, just, plus the opportunity of having triplets or quadruplets. Right. And or I octuplets. do. My, my brother-in-law's friend, they've struggled with it and they used IVF. And it's their first time, as their first round of IVF and they got triplets. So amazing. now they're done. You know what I mean? Like, so, wow. It was awesome. It's cool. Um, and the last one, I th- think about the smallpox vaccination. Yeah. I don't remember that. Blessing. Total blessing. I don't want to deal with smallpox. Plus just a little um, Pepto-Bismol. I mean, that pretty much saved Jeff's life on I mean, Monday. Right. Pepto-Bismol. It coats, it soothes, it relieves. Think of it as just like allergy medicine. Mm. People, would it would just be... Awful. Yeah. This time of year. Anyways, You're those are some of the major discoveries I could think of. I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about. It's great insight. But just be grateful for your doctors. Be grateful for the technology you have and take advantage of it if yeah. you need it. And, uh, you know, pray for these surgeons. I think it's in France. Yeah. And the right head now, transplant. and maybe to pray for, uh, you know, Congress people to figure out how to pass a health care law. That would be great because we have so much technology and a lot of modern we advances. Need we need access to those things. So great. Hopefully they can figure something out. Caitlin, thanks. You're welcome. Good morning. And good and luck and uh, good luck to the person with the head transplant. Yeah. We'll be back, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back. 
my friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. This is the program where we give you the tools, the skills, the leg up in life, the information you need to know to uh, live a healthier, happier life. Nobody was given a handbook, so you got to make up your own. But uh, you need to, sometimes you, it would be nice to know what's, uh, what's the latest research, what are the latest ideas, a little motivation, and some humor. We try to throw all of that in there. Uh, we're very light on the humor. Mine came with instructions, but uh, no batteries. Batteries were not included. Oh, that's horrible. Horrible. Do you hear about the guy having the, the head transplant? Yes, it was actually a Russian doctor. Really? We've had that story before, yes. But if this happens, I have a feeling there's going to be a really long line. I don't know because um, apparently this guy tried it with a monkey and it didn't go so well. Hold on, really? Yeah. Didn't work. No, and, and you know, there's some regulatory issues about taking a head and putting it on a different body. Well, like a monkey head, yeah. Well, no, I mean like humans. Countries have like laws and they're really uneasy with this. So he's been having to kind of shop around mm-hmm. to find a place that's not going to arrest him for desecrating bodies and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's been uh, Hasn't, lots of challenges with well, this. Well, I thought we've procedure. already – mythologically, I thought we already, are, we already had the half man, half horse, half man, half goat. Sure. People make up stories. It works, yeah. Can't he sign Mermaids. people up? <laughs> Can't he, you know, have people sign up for that after they pass? Um, Maybe throw well, a thou their way? Wouldn't they have to sign up before they pass? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Like we sign up to donate well, our organs he if got we a, pass. He got a volunteer of a guy who's uh, paraplegic Yeah. who mm-hmm. would really enjoy a fully functioning body. Right. And then he found someone willing to donate their body. Just you have to figure out how to do it in a situation where the government and the people are going to let you do it. Well, because you need medical facilities and they're not going to be on the hook for some weird, you know, medical experiments. Right. In that way. This sounds like the making of a really crazy like Frankenstein story. That's kind of the problem is he needs a castle and some access to lightning and that would probably be a better okay. And then he'll need a bride. Yeah. Well. This is going to be awkward now trying to transition to today's topic oh. because we are supposed to learn today how to reach out of our comfort zone. Right. And try something new. Like head transplants. Being beheaded would definitely be outside of your comfort zone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we don't even want to go there. We'll be talking about the book Reach, a new strategy to help you step outside of your comfort zone. Rise to the challenge and build confidence. Bam. Bam. It's a really interesting topic. Uh it's fascinating, quite honestly, because so much of what we do and so many of the stories we tell are really just designed to keep us from trying to be out of our comfort zone. Like, yeah, I just – I didn't want to – I didn't want to push my partner to have to change. So – and I wanted to keep the family happy. So I just stayed in the marriage as it was. That might be a story we tell. But it also might be because you don't want to go out of your comfort zone. We all stay the same for years and years and years. So we'll get into all of that fun talk ahead, plus some interesting uh, what we call MT news. Matt Townsend News, um, uh, a Maine man trying to kill ants, accidentally sets his house on fire. Oops. Yeah, there's better ways to kill ants, not aunts. My dad did it with charcoal lighter fluid. Yeah. But it was outside. It wasn't in the basement. So. Yeah, and then how many parking tickets do you think – is is too many. 
I mean, at what point do you think like the meter maid stops giving you a parking ticket for your car being parked there? Three? Yeah. No. No? Nope. It's the principle of the thing. You've got to keep giving them until that car is gone. 26 tickets. We'll talk about that. Whoa. One car, 26 tickets, parked illegally six months. Hmm. At at some point, you think you just impound it. Yeah, just tow it away. Obviously, it's not going anywhere. Tough stuff. We'll get to that. Uh, all that fun ahead. But first to the headlines. And uh, Terry, fill us in. What's going on? What do we need to worry about? FBI Director James Comey tried to make public information about Russia's interference in the U.S. presidential election in the summer of 2016, but was blocked by the Obama administration, according to a Newsweek report. He had a draft of it or uh, online. He had held up a piece of paper in a meeting and said, I want to go forward. What do you people think? A source told Newsweek. That June or July meeting allegedly included National Security Advisor Susan Rice, Secretary of State John Kerry, Attorney General Loretta Lynch. The information would have been disseminated via an op-ed, likely in the New York Times, and it would have included much of the same information released by the FBI in January. But it wasn't until October that the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of uh, National Intelligence had publicly recused the Russian government from meddling in the election. According to the report, the official batted down Comey's idea because they believed the announcement would fall flat and should instead come from a, a form of coordinated messages instead. Huh. Signed off by multiple agencies. So no. instead of an op-ed in the New York Times yeah. and put it out a year ago, they do, they'll do. they wait until after the election and then talk about it. You know Why? Because Hillary would have been a bigger target than Donald Trump a year ago. Right. They didn't want to look like they're favoring anybody. I mean, she already did the uranium thing, whatever all that was about. I mean, wasn't anything. No, nothing except Russia tied, right? Ended up buying the rights. It was signed off by like 15 agencies and the White House. Oh, I know exactly. But watch, they didn't want to get into that mess. Right. It just turns into a mess. Yeah. Now so, it's all about Trump. So moving on. Even that, though he tries to send it back to Hillary. He tries really it's not hard. Happening. This morning he on Twitter he went after the Freedom Caucus. Yes. Called them out, said that they are them and the Democrats are horrible for America, he said. Wow. So we'll see how that fights. Freedom Staphylococcus. Staphylococcus. On Wednesday, the White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer indicated that Trump's administration will revisit health care following the bruising failure of the Republican replacement bill last week. Trump talked about repealing and replacing. Spicer explained it is a commitment he has made. He'd like to get it done. Spicer dismissed Trump's comments about the ease of replacing affordable care as being a lighthearted moment and added that health care is an ongoing discussion for the White House. On Wednesday, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan said that he is worried that if the Republicans don't start seeing results, President Trump could abandon the party and work with the Democrats. We're wow. going to lose the White House. Yeah. Because, well, he's... We gotta, yeah, you got to start. Hey, I'll work with the Dems. He just wants to win. It's all about winning. Americans, America's pedestrian deaths climbed by 25% between 2010 and 2015, with 28,000 people killed nationally after being struck by a vehicle. According to a report by the Governor's Highway Safety Association, pedestrians now make up 15% of all people killed in traffic accidents. Unfortunately, this latest data shows that the U.S. is not meeting the mark on keeping pedestrians safe, said Jonathan Atkins, executive director of the association. The use of smartphones by both pedestrians and drivers was listed as a contributing factor in the increase, as well as improved economic conditions and low gas prices putting more drivers 
on the road. Oh. So stop playing with your phone as you cross the road, people. <laughs> and finally, Charles Smith's gun may have been fake, but a New York City Court of Appeals ruling against him is very real. This out of the Wall Street Journal, the court decided Tuesday to retain Smith's conviction of attempted first-degree robbery instead of reducing the charge, even though it was Smith's hand, not a firearm under his hoodie, when he told a teller in a Queens check cashing store that he had a gun and demanded money. So he put his hand under his hoodie sweatshirt and just made the shape of a gun yeah, with yeah. his finger and told the old her. old fake gun. Yeah. So the court said that based on the interpretation of New York's penal law regarding robbery, the teller reasonably could have thought he really had a gun, uh, yeah. warranting the higher charge. To bolster its decision for its 2011 case, the court cited a previous 1989 case that it had ruled on which said that the ball was in a defendant's court to prove that there was no gun. It's in the defendant's court. Yeah. To prove there wasn't a gun. Yeah, so the guy standing there with the gun needed to pull his hand out to show and that say, it's just See, his not hand. a gun, just my finger. Then then they'll lower then they the charge. Sure. But because he yeah. kept it in, they had no idea. They Everyone in the room was operating as if he had a gun. It that's, still goes as armed robbery. And you heard that's why Jeff always, when he robs banks, yeah. he always he doesn't do the gun in the sweatshirt thing or the pocket. He always does the rocket missile on the shoulder, a shoulder rocket launched propelled like a, a bazooka yeah yeah that's what he does okay. and then then everyone knows it's not real okay well that, that works you said that? you were never going to use my real name in connection with those stories, stories. I, I meant jeff we'll call uh, them stories i meant jeff johnson mm, that cleared it up that one jeff the, yep. other, the other jeff not jeff simpson liam simpson nice jeff johnson mm. the bazooka faker all right remember bazooka faker What's happening? You can't even – now everyone's like – Five-year-old girl in North Carolina picked yeah. up a stick. Uh, she was playing queen and king with her friends. Oh, yeah. She was knighting someone. She would No, she was their guard. So she picked up a stick she thought looked like a gun and she was guarding the king and the queen. A teacher saw it. The five-year-old was suspended from school. Wow. Because she was playing with something that looked like a gun. It was a stick. So she gets tossed out of school for that. So there's – Well, you, know, you, can't, you can't play make-believe? No. You know, there was a time when I was a kid, I was throwing pieces of cookie to a dog in a neighboring yard, uh-huh. and a well, kid on the on who owned that dog thought I was throwing rocks at it and came over and got me in trouble. But, you know, when you're a kid, yeah. you get traumatized, you freeze up, you don't say anything. No. And then don't, you can't you, defend yourself. You just fell to the ground, right? Pretty much. Um, you're still crying to this day. That's a sad story. <laughs> there you go. You weren't, they weren't even rocks. They were just mom's cookies. That was, that was a trap. You were just tossing the cookies. Yeah. Just like Monday. Wait a minute. Back at the old shrimp story. You keep bringing up the shrimp story. You got to knock it off. Hey, um, <laughs> man, uh, trying to kill ants accidentally sets his house on fire. Hmm. We've all been there. No. Oh. Okay, nope. go on. Never set my house on fire. <laughs> uh, never seriously, electroc- seriously electrocuted myself, and I haven't fallen off a ladder in my backyard with hedge trimmers. Hey, that could happen to anyone. This is why it's better, you guys. Once you have kids, you let them do the yard work. Well, he's five. What am I supposed to do? Hand, Hand him, him a hedge trimmer? No, 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 no. Hand- get him on the lawnmower. Get him a riding lawnmower. Well, I've asked for my wife to allow me to get one. She has this thing like our yard needs to be a certain size to justify the tractor. This is the same conversation I'm having with my wife. You want a tractor? Yeah. 
You know what my, is so wrong? My five-year-old comes up and whispers. He goes, we should just get one anyways. And That'll go, go over well. I go, don't you think she'll notice the tractor in the backyard? And he goes, yeah, then it'll be too late and we'll just keep it. He's a, <laughs> he's like, wow. a little sneaky guy. Like, where have you learned this behavior? And then I feel bad because I may have said something along the way. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, this guy, uh, you know, has apparently the fire that that destroyed the man's home was caused as he was attempting to kill ants in the basement of the home hmm. by burning them with matches. Authorities said one of the matches ignited nearby combustibles and spread quickly to the rest of the home. The house was owned by Doucette parents, uh, Doucette's parents and is considered a total loss. This 21-year-old kid so the, burnt his parents' home down. The, the moral, don't have oily rags sitting around your basement when you're trying to burn ants with matches. Right. Plan ahead. All those old newspapers you're never going to recycle. Yeah. How many times – Though, did you do something like that that could have turned into a major event? You burnt a – you lit a match in oh, your sure. house? Yeah. I burned a coat in our living room and so it burned a big section of the carpet. Really? <laughs> mm-hmm. I love your childhood. <laughs> it's great content for the show. Well, we, we, we wish him the best. The in, kid's 21. In rebuilding the house. Yeah. Or finding a new one. We'll Hopefully they're insured too, right? Well, you hope. A uh, UK driver has been given 26 parking tickets after leaving their car in the same spot for six months. The fines are worth $100 each and are now worth considerably more because uh, <laughs> they're, they're worth more than the 16-year-old Hyundai Coupe. Yeah. Think of what a 16-year-old Hyundai looked like. Right. Do you remember those? Yeah. The uh, car finds uh, it's the car has been sitting in the parking lot for six months, and the owner nowhere to be seen. The Y the Y Reg Hyundai Coupe could be valued at around one hundred and fifty dollars, making the fines attaching a staggering seventeen times more than the value of the vehicle itself. Now that's what the story said. I could not confirm the price of this car. Well, I think I don't know that anybody could confirm the price of a Y Reg Hyundai Coupe. It's it's a British. Model, so it's not something that's sold in the U.S. So yeah. trying to nail down the price, but 150 bucks for a car? Yeah, I don't even know if that's possible. No, I mean at that point you're dealing like what was scrap metal? Yeah, yeah. So, but like, yeah, but Hyundai scrap metal from 16 years ago. Yeah, which who knows if it was even metal back then? Now Hyundai's got a real good reputation. Back then. Do you remember the first Hyundai cars in well, no, America? I, but you could probably get one of those cars for $1,500. So that's think? what I'm thinking. Maybe they dropped a zero out of the story. Yeah, I'm betting not. You don't think so? No. I was on Auto Trader trying to figure out prices If, if of it was worth cars. that much, the guy would have been all over getting it, right? He would have been trying to save it. I don't know. I mean, because... You, you ever try to buy a $1,500 car? Well, because he, he, 16 tickets in, he was still breaking even if it was that <laughs> worth that He's much. He's like, I'm not moving it yet. <laughs> We're a kid. We're good. Anyway, sad, sad day. So today, um, to help us out of this, uh, this kind of this negative news story that we've kind of run into, we're going to be joined in a minute by Andy Malinsky, author of the book Reach, a new strategy to help you step outside of your comfort zone. You know what? There's going to be no growth till you step out. So we'll be learning how to do it and how to overcome some of our fears up next. Stick with us.
Well, we've all had those moments where we start a new job or move to a new city or are faced with unfamiliar situations. It can be scary to get outside of your comfort zone, but uh, uh, expert in psychology and behavior in the business world, Andy Malinsky says that's where the magic happens. Getting out of our comfort zone is where we can grow, learn, and develop the way that expands our horizons beyond what we thought was possible. He joins us today from Boston to discuss his new book, Reach, and teach us some new strategies to help us uh, step outside of our comfort zones, rise to the challenge, and build self-confidence. Andy Malinsky, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on. This is, uh, this is I think, needed, right? We, if we're not going to grow if we don't get into the discomfort zone. Is that, is that true, or is that just kind of an old myth? I think that's true. Uh, it has to be something that we're interested in, 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 in pursuing. You know, we have to have a, an interest uh, in trying to, to, trying, to, trying to reach. But if, if, uh, if it's anxiety and fear getting in the way, and if it's something that you're really interested in going for, absolutely. I think stepping outside your comfort zone is really key. What, um, one of the things you, you talk about in the book is behavior flexing. Is that right? What do you mean by that? I think it's 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 about it's sort of like the idea that um, that your capacity uh, and your confidence uh, in that courage to step outside your comfort zone is almost like a muscle. It's something that you can actually learn to to flex and to build in a sense. But there's some real strategy behind it. So it's the idea of becoming more flexible, stepping outside your comfort zone in situations where you would like to grow and learn and develop. And um, and so I found that um, that there were some pretty consistent patterns across all the different people that I studied in terms of behavior flexing. And so that's why I use that term. It's, it's kind of, it's a fun idea. I, I remember always being nervous um, to like be the first person to do stuff. Uh, you know, I, I'd always wait till others did it. And then one day I realized that there's, there's a lot less pressure, it seems like, on the first person than the last person because everyone's, you know, already done it and now you got to be compared to everyone. So I, I had this rule where every time I – every time they asked for a volunteer to do something, I would do it early and fast. I learned this in college. And it just – it immediately kind of took the pressure off me, but it actually changed me. I guess that was me flexing. And, and all of a sudden, now I'm comfortable doing it. But before, I was terrified. So I guess part of what you're saying is if, if we reach out of our comfort zone, eventually it will become more natural. Yeah, I think it's what you're talking about. It's a great idea. It's like ripping the Band-Aid off. Right? Yeah, just it's, get I in think, there. I think, I think when you're – yeah, if you're – I think we have, if we have the opportunity to, to, to stew on it, to chew on it, um, a lot of the fears, um, the, the psychological roadblocks that hold, that hold us back can, can start to loom large. And, and, and so I like the idea of, um, of, of, of just doing it. Although I have to say that, um, you know, when you go on the Internet and you look up, you know, comfort zone on Google, you'll find a lot of pictures of people saying, just do it. You just know, do it. Off. Yeah jump off the cliff, jump into the whatever it is, which is great advice. But, but what I found is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that, that goes into the capacity to, to sort of climb the ladder to be able to take the leap. That, mm. That's kind of, sort of like the hidden work behind, behind the scenes that I think is really important to understand. Yeah. What I, what I love about what you're doing too, I mean, you're not just doing this theoretically. You, I mean, you're a successful writer, author. You do a lot of, uh, a, a lot of work and a lot of public speaking. But, for example, you weren't comfortable as a speaker. 
No. <laughs> you grew your way into this. You flexed your way in. Absolutely. I was the kid, if anyone's listening, if anyone's a college student, I'm a professor now, but I was in, when I was in college, I was the kid in the back of the room who was terrified to say anything in class. My heart would beat, my face would turn red, my hand would kind of go up, but then go down. You know, and I carried that into my very first jobs, you know, like maybe 20 years ago. I remember the very first time, I, my first job was at the University of Southern California out in LA. I was a professor there and I remember getting getting some offers to do some pretty, you know, nice public speaking opportunities with some companies out there. And I remember them, you know, asking me and, and, and I was just terrified at the idea. And I looked at my calendar and I said, oh, oh those dates aren't going to work. And of, and of course, my calendar, my calendar was empty. But you didn't even have a calendar. I couldn't face it. Yeah. It's and I guess that's. That's the thing um, and that you want us to learn is you, as we face it, um, it, it changes for us. The, the task itself becomes different as we become more informed about it. But you, you also bring up – and I love the, the way we kind of challenge going into this discomfort zone. You, you bring up five different challenges which honestly, just as I work with couples in, in relationships and those that you know need to do hard things – Every one of these challenges become these excuses we use. Maybe talk us through some of those challenges that people throw out there. Yeah, sure. So, so the first one's authenticity. Um, the idea that you know when I'm stepping outside my comfort zone that that and by the way these are legitimate. You yeah. Know, that that, that I, I, I this won't feel like me. Um, you know, I for for example, I uh, I I interviewed a bunch of I interviewed a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life, professions, and so on. But but one group was was a, a group of young entrepreneurs, and they they were describing to me how incredibly inauthentic it felt to put up their put on their grown up voice and wear. <laughs> suit and tie, when of course they never did usually, and pitch their ideas in front of venture capitalists, sort of like a shark tank type of situation. And, you know, I think a lot of times we feel inauthentic. We feel like we're posers. We feel like we're wannabes. We feel like we're, you know, imposters and so on, stepping into situations or roles or tasks that, you know, we, we maybe are afraid we're not ready for. And so I think that, that the, the idea of feeling inauthentic is something that really holds a lot of us back. Yeah. Um, likeability. That's another one. And that was, that was really interesting. I was, I was surprised by it at first, but then I kept hearing it time and time again, the idea that, that people aren't going to like this, you know, the fear that people won't like this version of me if I do this. Um, I, people hate me even. You know, I, I, I heard that a lot with um, delivering bad news, for example, or being more assertive. Uh, then you'd then, then you'd comfortably naturally be sort of you know telling someone you know I don't I don't really like I don't appreciate the way you're treating me, and a lot of people are afraid to say things like that because deep down they're afraid the person's going to hate them. Or yeah, like totally. Them. I mean that's real. So, yeah. So so another one you brought up is a lot of people don't they just don't know how to do it. They're they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to do it without a breakdown, without fear. Um, I mean a, a lot of times you'll see kids that'll kind of use this one. Like, I don't, I don't know how to go ask the girl out. I don't know how to do it. Talk about competency. Exactly. Confidence. Like I'm afraid, I'm afraid I'm going to look like a fool. Right. Yeah. And the thing about competence is that it's sort of like a, it's a two sided issue because there's the private side where you'll feel, you, you can feel incompetent, 
and then there's the public side where you're imagining how other people are perceiving your incompetence. Mm. So it's sort of a double whammy there. Yeah. I think that holds holds us back. And another one, just to sort of add, pile, not to pile on here, but but another another one that holds us back is resentment. You know, it's interesting. I've spoken with a lot of this book, stepping outside your comfort about stepping outside your comfort zone, has really resonated with a lot of um, introverts um, because. You know the the world that we work in today, I think, in large part, is 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 a bit more geared towards extroverts. Yeah, totally. You know, extroverted behavior. You know, the ability to be assertive and to speak your mind and to speak up at meetings and network and chit chat and so on. And you know, those are the things that 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 are often valued. And so, a lot of introverts tell me that that they feel resentful. You know, that that why why can't the quality of my work just determine how 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 I do professionally? Why does it have to be all these other things? You know, I'm. Yeah, that's so. I, the, the, I hear all of these. Um, the last challenge is kind of the moral challenge. It it doesn't feel right. Yeah, you know, it's. I didn't hear this. You know, I didn't hear this one with everybody, but there were enough examples that I, I felt compelled to put it here. You know, the, I opened my book, so my book Reach. I opened it with um, a story of a, of a young woman who had to fire her best friend from her from her startup. Talk about something outside your comfort zone. Oh, you know, wow. I think. For her, you know, for her being an entrepreneur was outside her comfort zone. Now she's in the position of firing her best friend. Um, I spoke. I had a very, um, a very interesting conversation with um, someone uh, who is a booker on a national TV show. And a booker's job is to book guests on the show. And and she she often had to book guests in the face of national tragedies, like let's say, or local tragedies. She would have to get, try to get a family who suffered a tragedy on the air. Let's say it was a, I don't know, a plane crash or a train crash or something. And she, in her job, was to be the first network to get that family. Mm. So you can imagine, you know, the the moral pang she felt in the in the conflict she felt because she she knew what she needed to do to do her job and to do her job well and she she was a she cared about being a good professional and being responsible at work and so on but the very content of her work made her feel like she was doing something immoral and ultimately she actually left the job yeah but but um but you know it's uh, you know sometimes we do feel that too so the the point on all these is that you're not going to necessarily feel all of them every time, but even one of them can make st- st- stepping outside your comfort zone hard. And, and one of the things that I could see being a journalist uh, at when I was uh, got my bachelor's degree, I w- I could see using those excuses or those those challenges to keep me from having to do what I didn't want to do. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. I, so because yeah. my my I was not comfortable doing it, so I would actually have gone down every one of your your. Authenticity, likability, competence, resentment, and moral challenge to not have to go ask that question. Um, but in reality, it may also suit us sometimes to stay in it long enough that you can feel comfortable, then make that decision. Yeah, you know, and, and, and these are, as I said earlier, these are real um, genuine challenges people face. Yeah. Uh, I guess what I guess what you have to balance is the extent to which this you feel that that this situation or whatever the task might be whether it's you know i don't know learning to speak up or be assertive or try something you've never tried or whatever it is you kind of have to think to yourself is this something that i really want to go for i mean if i could if i could have a magic you know eraser and erase the fear and worry would this would this thing be something that i'd love to be able to 
be able to do. Yeah. And, and, and if the answer is yes, in that sort of little thought experiment in your head, then then these are these are challenges that are that, that you can work to overcome. Mm, interesting stuff. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Andy Malinsky, who is the author of the book Reach, a new strategy to help you step outside of your comfort zone, rise to the challenge and build confidence. We'll take a break, come back and uh, get to the some solutions that Andy has uh, three basic rules, I guess, as we as we come back and try to uh, get out there and, and reach a little bit more. Stick with us. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us is Andy Malinsky. He's a professor at Brandeis University's International Business School and author of several books. The book we're talking about today is Reach, a new strategy to help you step outside of your comfort zone, rise to the challenge, and build confidence. He's also a, a, a writer um, and writes extensively with Psychology Today and um, also uh, Harvard Business Review as well. You can find more about him at andymalinsky.com, andymalinsky.com, or follow him on Twitter at Andy Malinsky. Andy, again, thanks for being with us. Yeah, happy to be here. So you talk about in the book that there are there are some strategies, three strategies, I guess, in particular that that work to help us move outside of our comfort zone. How, what, how would you kind of set up these three strategies? What do we need to focus on? Yeah, so in, in these, these strategies are strategies uh, that I found people across professions, across contexts, were using in one way or another to get themselves to uh, take the leap, essentially. Um, the first was conviction. Um, and conviction is quite simply having a deep sense of purpose in ab- about why you're actually doing this. Like, what? Why is the why is the pain worth the gain? And really focusing in on that gain. Like, what's in it for you in a deep way? Um, and, and that really differs by person. So for some people. Um, it was, let's say, a, pr- a professional source of conviction that they they just have always wanted to become a manager or have always wanted to become a leader or have, ha- have always dreamed about becoming an entrepreneur. And this is this was their calling, let's say. And so, yes, there are certain tasks and, and responsibilities and behaviors that are going to be outside their comfort zone. But this is something that they've always wanted to do yeah. or, it could, or, or it could be personal. You know, for some of us, for me, I can tell you it's very personal. Um, I've got a, uh, I've got a ten and a twelve year old. Um, I'm, I'm a dad, um, and and whenever I um, feel like I'm afraid to step outside my comfort zone, which uh, feels like every day, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I think to myself, what what kind of dad do I want to be? You know, what what kind of um, what kind of um, role model do I want to be? And that that is a very strong source of conviction. The the point is 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 it it's very personal and but but that was critical uh, for 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 people. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea. So you got to have the conviction. I mean, really, the conviction is what's going to get you to reach right. The the conviction that that there's something bigger to gain here for you or someone you love. Yeah, because it's not it's not easy, but but you need to have that effort. 
um, and, and you need to have a source, uh, sort of a well of motivation. So the, the second, the second um, tool, I guess you could call it, um, or resource, was, was um, customization. That's what I call it. This was really surprising and actually really exciting in a way. Um, and I found this in so many different ways once I started to notice it. Um, you know, in these situations outside our comfort zones, I think we can feel helpless or, or powerless in, in a way. And what customization is is it's the ability that, that you probably have more ability than you think to make subtle little tweaks in the situation that you're encountering, little minor adjustments that actually make a pretty big difference. Hmm. Um, you know, sometimes it has to do with subtly changing or not so subtly changing your body language. It could be bringing props, little props to a situation. So, for example, wearing that power suit, wearing that lucky ring. I actually wore a lucky ring to speeches earlier in my hmm. career when I started you know, to, 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 so it, was a, it happened to be a ring that where, where the stone was something that my great uncle found in World War II and on, on a beach in the South Pacific, and it always represented courage to me. And so no one, no one knew I was, I was. It meant that to me, but I would wear it, and that gave me a little boost. Yeah, um, I so, use. I found humor is a way that a I can one. customize yeah. it because I had more control just because I was. My dad had a great sense of humor, but I I noticed that man, I can make a speech funnier. And that's something not everyone can do, and I can take any tense moment and make it lighter. And that that starts to make it feel a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, it's mine. Yeah. In speech, so speeches, that's a good one. So, you know, um, you could, uh, what I do oftentimes is I'll I'll come early to an an event Mm. so that I can not only see the setting, but also it's really helpful for me to meet meet a few people who are there because then all of a sudden it's not me speaking to a group of a big group of strangers yeah. but actually to a couple of people I've, I've talked to yeah love um, that i mean there's so many examples uh that that we could go on and on but the the but the bottom line is that you have more power than you think to to make these minor alterations you know it's sort of the analogy i like to use is like a tailor when we buy a pair of pants very few of us can just buy or buy them off the rack. I mean, right. sometimes, but, but oftentimes you have to make those little, just minor adjustments to make them fit right for you. And that's, that's sort of the analogy. And once you, what's funny is it seems like once you start finding these little, uh, tweaks, they, you can use them again and you can use them again and then you can use them in any situation and you can use them everywhere. Exactly. Or they, or you start to build up the confidence and the courage and so on. It becomes, it becomes more natural yeah, for you. That's great. And they, th- those tweaks become less necessary. That's great. I love it. Customization. So having the conviction that we need to do it, that we can do it, there's a calling bigger than me for this and customizing. And what's the final? What's the third one? The third one was clarity. Um, you know, I think in a lot of situations that are outside our comfort zones, we can sway very quickly from one extreme to the other. Psychologists call it catastrophizing, mm-hmm. so looking at the worst possible outcomes and kind of fixating on that. You know, I have to give a – we're talking about speeches. I have to give a speech. I'm going to be a total flop. This is going to be a failure, you know, and fixating on that awful you know, very unlikely, but totally awful possibility. Or sometimes we fixate on the other extreme, on the 
very unrealistic but idealized op, uh, uh, you know version so for example i'm only giving a speech if i'm like the best ted talk person ever or something. right right and you know i th- i think that anxiety often pulls us to ex- to unrealistic extremes and i found that people were, who were most successful at taking the leap were able to develop some sort of more sober sense of you know normalized clarity about their situation that middle ground you know that for example you know i'm you know i probably won't be the best TED talker ever when I give my speech. And you know what? I probably won't flop. It probably won't be a, yeah. such a disaster. I'll probably be somewhere in the middle. I'll, you know, probably learn a lot. And next time I'll, you know, I, chances are I'll, I'll probably be a little bit better next time and so on. So it's, it was capturing sort of that, that, that realistic middle ground and not, not, not um, flowing to the extremes. And that's what I meant by clarity. And I found, I found that that was a key resource for people. I love that. Um, we we got to go. We got about 30 seconds. What would you say um, when we talk about it, Andy, what's the one thing? What's the one thing we can do today, this second, to start uh, extending our reach? Remind yourself that you've done it before. You've spent your entire life stretching outside your comfort zone. You know, as a toddler, you move from crawling to walking. You move from elementary school to high school. You move from high school to college. You've taken leaps before, right? Remember that you have more experience and you probably have made more capability than you think. That's great stuff. Andy Malinsky is his name. Go to his website um, and and get more information. AndyMalinsky.com. The book Reach, a new strategy to help you step outside your comfort comfort zone, rise to the challenge, and build confidence. Good stuff. We got we to gotta do something, you know. Turtle never gets anywhere until it sticks its neck out. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, for those of you with a more refined taste, we will now pick up the game a little bit on the show and head down to our 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 good friends and fellows down at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. How are you, kind gentlemen? Yeah. Better than ever. Yeah, we're in tuxedos. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Are you, you guys aren't wearing tuxes now, are you? We are right now. Oh, we, we hosted the Y Awards. I know, so today but we wear them on the show. Hey, will you promise to wear those to the company meeting? Nope. Yeah. I will. I'll Dude. wear mine. Oh, come on, Spencer. You wear yours. He'll wear his. I've got to call a baseball he has game to. at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He's got to, he's got to bounce. Plus, you got to get your tux back to the I'll 1970s tuxedo store. Thank you, Jerem. Yeah, he'll be busy at the baseball game sitting waiting for the rain to stop. Is it going to rain? Yeah. Sorry yeah. about that. 70% chance at 2, I think. Uh, wear, <laughs> wear a windbreaker. Um, so how did it go oh, my last? It's breaking so much wind. Said how, no one. How did it go? Were you guys the hit? Uh, depends on who you ask. Who cares? Did, did okay? Let me just ask you this: Did people laugh? Yes, at some point. Yes, yeah. yeah. No, they, we. Uh, I I love the boom roasted, boom roasted <laughs> element to hosting that. Yeah, I really enjoy the lighthearted nature of this job. Um, at a at a place that is fun to work at, right? Did you did you get a good turnout? Straight edged, so it's it's fun to kind of kind of push it a little bit. Yeah, stretch stretch it, push it. Did you get the good turnout? We were hoping to get you more people. Yeah, it was a good turnout. It was great. It was a, it was a fun time. It's it's fun because you celebrate Cougar sports and you realize 
there's a lot of awesome at this school and yeah. in this athletic department. And it was it was a great night, and it was fun to have some fun and take some shots at people. How did the cobalt blue tux come off? Oh, did it? well. I, I thought it was good. You can tell you'll them in see. person. You'll see it. You'll see it on, uh, yeah, you'll see it at the staff meeting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure wear it. I think that'll look. And make sure you come in come in on the stage level. Don't come in up top. Come in where everyone can see I'll, like, you. I'll come in like a minute late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, yeah, a, yeah. be a minute late. Seriously. <laughs> like, oh. oh, I'm rolling what into the time, staff the, meeting. The meeting starts at 1130. 1130. Yeah. Hey, you I guys. too much time to change. But if you, you come, you guys come, I'll buy you a potato. We're, we're having a potato bar. I'll buy you one. I'm from Idaho. I'm, like, I was born in Idaho. I'm yeah. cool. I'm and that's why, you, that's why you're dressing up with the tuxedo. Mm-hmm. Spectacular. <laughs> So um, this is exciting. Was there? Do you guys want to throw maybe out a joke, uh, maybe something that you one of your lines, and see if it works on our group? Because we have a studio audience in my studio, and we'll see if they laugh at any of your bits. Mm, I'm trying to think of one that I feel like would hit with the elite level comedians that you work with. That's true. That's a great. That's a great point. Way to think about the audience. Um, and uh, uh-huh. how about? The we did the top ten things that will happen next year for BYU. We already sports. know. We already know what will happen in the next year. Yeah, like so, we we know these things Garby. will happen. G- you know, give us one. Okay, so uh, I think number four was Jeff Judkins will mispronounce at least two of his players' names <laughs> all year long. He's famous for this. <laughs> <laughs> laugh track, yeah, baby. Laugh track. They're very yes. sports centric jokes. No, that's not a laugh track. We, we did a fake. Fake text convo among yes. all the coaches that yep. we showed. Oh, yeah, yeah. I heard that you had to go prepare and that. Bronco Mendenhall was in it, and he's like, get me out of this. <laughs> and then he's like, no, seriously, get me out of here. And I, then I said, he had three and a half million, million reasons. reasons to get out of here. Uh, and the crowd was like, oh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. It really turned into a little roast. Boom, well, roasted. We compared Boom, TJ Haas at one point jokingly to Voldemort, and that made some people uncomfortable. Ooh. We did doppelgangers. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah. Everyone so then we were told, hey, give TJ some love. <laughs> so, then, so then we came out and said, it was Tyler that told yeah. us. Yeah, it was your older brother yeah, Tyler, Tyler that made said us that. do it. And yeah. Nick and Derek. And then, and then it was sh- still quiet. Yeah. I was like, yeah. well, okay. moving on. <laughs> All right. Yeah, some, yep. sometimes yeah, yep. you can't. That was probably the most awkward moment of the night. Yeah, that was the most awkward by far. Well, luckily, Among many awkward moments. Well, yes. luckily you'll get to interview the Haas family all over again for the next three or four mm-hmm. years. Yeah, right? super so. excited about the next time we get That's to talk to That's why we're like, oh, shoot, he's a freshman. Yeah, good luck. Uh, good luck. Also, good luck. also this, we did the top five power couples. Ooh. And our number one power couple was the heartthrob quarterback, Tanner Mangum, ah. and fill in the blank. <gasps> Ooh. Because there's not a person yet. <laughs> well, oh, because or there's the opposite. Okay, Matt. okay. There's too many. <laughs> he's the quarterback. There's a plethora. <laughs> yes, I understand. So now. it was just an. Do you out, understand the benefits associated <laughs> with being said quarterback? An outline of a of a female body next to Tanner. <gasps> Matt, do you know what Nick Mo means? Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's a technical term, right? Yeah. And there's so a lot Tanner of it going it, yeah. on. Yeah. So then we're like the top five. I mean, four and a half. <laughs> that one's funny because the athletes all come up to us that weren't in it, and they're like, hey, why wasn't why wasn't I, I in, in it? it every year? And the cross-country runner Rory Linkletter is always like, why was why am I not in it? His girlfriend is uh, an outstanding gymnast. Yeah. So we didn't make it, so we're like, maybe you're senior if we're hosting. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you guys think you, you guys think those jokes are funny? We thought they were funny. Wrong. Wrong. 
Wrong. Donald Trump wrong. says Boom, no. roasted. You're wrong. Roasted. Boom. Okay, cool. So you're still going to do your show, even though yes. you had last night's yes. show. you got to do another show. And uh-huh. then you I got think to... it's Y-Awards themed. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah, we're going to have two of the winners. We're going to have Jamal Williams join the program. He was the male athlete of the year. We're going to have Carrie Roberts, the coach of the year, women's golf. She'll join us. We'll recap some of the awards in case you missed it. Uh, we're going to wear our tuxes, as mentioned. And we'll ask you this question. <laughs> yeah. Twitter question. Who is your BYU athlete of the year? Why? Wow, that's it's a good show, yeah, and we think so. Dressed to the nines, looking hot. Yeah, one of those two. Okay, one of the, one of those two. Okay, well, well, for sure, come in late to the to the meeting too, because I want to see that. Yeah, that'll be awesome. I'll probably change to be honest. No, 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 no. Work it. You only get to be in a tux so often. I'll wear mine for the first thirty minutes, but I have to leave at noon. Yeah, so that's perfect. You're loving it. Grab your potato and uh, get out of there. That's all I'm saying. I've never heard those words in my life. You you haven't lived till you've seen a guy in a tux at a potato bar. Hot. That that's yeah. unique. Totally. Totally. Okay, guys, have a good show. Knock them dead. That's cool, man. I want a tux. So you can spill chili potato on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can a guy not get a tux around here? What are we going to need? Someday we ought to do something for the show that that would warrant us needing tuxes. Hmm. I don't know what that would be. Hmm. Hmm. What a crock. Hey, what a crock is right. A student busted for taking baby gators into a taxi. A student at the University of Maine campus is in trouble for taking his five baby pet alligators inside a taxi cab. The pet reptiles began crawling around the cab Tuesday after a box tipped over. Cab driver Frank Folsom said he helped round the reptiles each longer than a foot. The 20-year-old University of Maine at Augusta student from China received a summons because alligators are not allowed to be kept in Maine. That obviously is a Florida thing. Gator ball. But you don't you don't keep them in Maine. So the Augusta Police Department says he's charged with importing or possessing wildlife without a permit and transporting them in a box. The staff and management of BYU Radio do not condone the housing and boarding of alligators or any other illegally acquired reptiles in any private domicile. Amen. Totally agree with Don Shaline. The son uh, told police he kept the alligators as pets and was taking them uh, with him to visit someone. He was just taking them out for a little trip. Can you not have a nice little drive with your pet anymore? It sounds like a made-up story. Why would you say that? That's not made up. We don't make up stories. No, not the story that you shared. The story that he shared with ah, the police. Ah, yes. I think he, he just is a guy. He's just an average guy. An average Joe taking his Crocs. Out for a walk. What kind of a country do we live in where a guy can't take his dozen crocodiles five. on a cab? Five There's crocodiles. Five, five baby crocs. Seems like a dozen. They, that's what they say when it comes yeah. to kids. Yeah. Like once you have five, you might as well have 12. Well, there's, you've heard of croc. You've heard of croc yield. It's like dog years. Every dog's year is seven. Every year is a seven years in dog years. Well, every croc is really like three in croc yield. Yeah, that's a croc. No, it's really not. By the way, crocs, my favorite shoe. 
most comfortable shoe you can have. Not that we're sponsoring, but that's, you know, you got to put it out there. Hey, the hero story, uh, a really cool story of a family that went on a little walk. They decided to to take uh, their one-and-a-half-year-old daughter uh, in a stroller, her two older sons on bicycles, and they went on a walk. And uh, as they, you know, they went out, they, they started walking down the street, and all of a sudden they heard this voice calling for help. Someone was yelling for help. It kind of scared me. I was like, did I really just hear that? that? Am I hearing things? Because it's not every day you hear someone yelling for help. Well, they realized that, nope, someone's yelling for help. And guess what happened? They found out. Kaylee Williams is her name. She found out that um, a, a neighbor, 66-year-old Kathy Hepker, a retired former director of the Hudson Library, she found her on the floor of her home. And uh, she had been there apparently for four days. This family then helped her get to the, get the emergency services there, and they took care of her. This poor woman had been on the ground for four days. Anyway, uh, she saved their she saved her life. Really, Kaylee Williams is the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. It's that simple, folks. Just keep your ears open, your eyes open. People are in need. We got to lighten up a bit and start taking care of one another. We're not enemies. We're friends. We're brothers and sisters on this big ball of mud flying through space. That's it. We'll be back tomorrow, folks. Until then, take care of each other and make it a great one.